horror fam, best friends and ghoulish knights, and welcome to the 19th episode of Murders with Mertens. I am your host, Joe, and this is a podcast about horror, cosmic horror, body horror, the horror adjacent, the supernatural, the psychologically terrifying, scary films in general. Each episode, I sit down with a guest and discuss one of their favorite scary films so that we can gush about everything that makes it just so damn cool. Viewers, thank you for supporting. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe if you are so inclined. It all helps to get the word out and bring some much-needed love to this fledgling podcast. I do have that minor goal of reaching 100 subs so I can get the custom URL for the channel. So, help, you know, we're kind of halfway there-ish, but we're getting there. But... Forgetting all of that for the moment, today I have the honor of welcoming back Madeline Stanley. But not Hello. just Madeline Stanley, she's brought along her husband Xander Stanley. Hello, folks. How's by you? Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. I'm glad we could finally work this out. We've been trying to do this for a minute. Ah, uh, really stoked to be here. Yeah. Yeah, well, we dressed for the occasion. Yeah. Yes, you have. Thing shirt. I made this shirt like half an hour ago, right there, <laughs> so that we could do it. That's absolutely perfect, Ben. Uh, yes, uh, today's topic 1994's John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, written by Michael DeLuca and directed by John Carpenter. I remember seeing this in the mid 90s. Uh, on VHS, I did not see it in the theater, but uh, it was roughly around the time when I was first, for the very first time, reading some H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, also, you know, with this film, getting one of my first tastes of homage when I probably was old enough to understand what that actually is. Uh, but guys, what, what's your history with this movie? You go first. Um you know, I don't, I don't remember when I saw this for the first time. It's one of those movies. I, I didn't see it anywhere close to when it came out. I was five years old when it came out. So, um, brag, flex. Um, but it was one of those movies that every time somebody mentioned not seeing it, my entire group of friends would come together. You have to see this movie. You have to see this movie. And so I assume at one point when I was a teenager, somebody grabbed me and was like, "You have to watch this movie." And I had been into H.P. Lovecraft for quite a while. It's one of those things that, that weird kids get into, you know, it's as, yeah, like uh, you do. Yeah. It's it like, like heavy metal or anything else. It's like, Oh, you're, you're kind of a, a weird bookish kid. You're going to find this. And it's so odd because cosmic horror apparently is very difficult to do in film. And, mm -hmm. and Carpenter's really the only person I can think of who's, who's nailed it twice as it turns out. But, um, yeah, I think the first time I saw it was probably with you during our great Carpenter watch his entire discography yeah. watch um, quite a few years ago. But it's definitely something that I immediately was drawn to. Like, I loved it the first time I watched it. And then I think I love I grow to love it. It's one of the ones that's been a slow burn. Like, it keeps upping on the rankings where I'm like, every year I'm like, I think I like this more than this Carpenter movie. Yeah. It keeps getting higher and higher. And then I know, I I feel like I might have, might have even mentioned this on the last podcast, but um, Dark Adventure Radio really? Theater does H.P. Lovecraft radio plays. And post listening to those, I feel like I even appreciate 
um, in the Mouth of Madness even more because I am getting I'm picking up on even more of the HP Lovecraft vibes. Yeah. And like I've gotten appreciation for the in the mountains of madness story and how that connects to this. And I just yeah, I love yeah. this movie so much. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, play on words of that title. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> but also, you know, fuck HP Lovecraft um, because the guy's exactly absolute asshole as it total piece out. of shit um you know when you're a teenager and reading this shit for the first time a lot of that stuff kind of washes over you but as you get older and um yeah a little bit more understanding of how things in the world you know kind of have been and work and everything you realize oh dude this guy's a piece of yeah. shit whoa he, he you may have spawned an amazing genre but also yeah no yeah it's, <laughs> well and i remember reading um call cthulhu the first time and there's some there's some racial terminology in that and i remember being like really taken aback by it because it was this story that people had been recommending to me for years and i was like whoa mm -hmm. like you know because that's just not what i i want to bring around me and it's not something yeah, i like yeah. to engage with and it's such an interesting story and it's like i, I it, yeah it's i think i really love in the mouth of madness because it's like okay well here's that but without the nasty, you know, crap, mm -hmm. like you can have the, you can have this and you can be proud of it and you can go out and, and say, guys, you got to watch this movie. It's so great. And not feel like you have to present it with a disclaimer where you're like, yeah, this is a really great right. story. But, um, yeah, that's yeah, why I yeah. wish there was more people doing great cosmic horror stuff because there is such I think a finite amount of people who are doing it well. So it's like, mm -hmm. I want more things to recommend besides HP Lovecraft. Like let's like yeah. let him fade into obscurity yeah. and raise up other cosmic horror type things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and also, you know, just getting off of that tangent because I know yeah. it's been played out, but also this is the capstone of Carpenter's apocalypse trilogy which, mm -hmm. you know, I, I never saw Prince of Darkness until mm, maybe last year or early this year. And I'm so happy I finally got around to it because it yeah. all makes so much sense now. Oh. I, Prince of Darkness <laughs> is such a strange film, but I really do love it. And I, it's like, I don't like it, but I do love it. And it's so strange because <laughs> like, I don't like... The story itself is not all that interesting, but like the imagery and like the use of of visual metaphor is so brilliant. And like that specific shot of the hand going through the mirror into the water, it's like so spooky and deeply unsettling in a way that this movie, like Mouth of Madness is a little bit sillier, like it's a little bit safer. Like yeah. it's like, it's yeah. okay, this isn't real. Like Prince of Darkness feels very real. And I think this movie, this film benefits from maybe a little bit more distance. A little bit more of a wink. Yeah. Maybe more restraint, almost. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. Because the thing is also, like, traumatic. <laughs> like, yeah. it's oh, a great God, movie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, not loved at the time, but uh, grew to be loved, right? Um, oh, yeah. the, the only thing I look back at the thing with any, you know, like, ah, I don't like that is just how the dogs are treated in the scene where they're hosed down with gore. You can tell they're not having it. They're having a bad happen. time in that scene, but you know, also the film was, you know, very much a product of its time and all that. Yeah. Uh, 
Prince of Darkness smacks to me a little bit of um, the whole reanimator from beyond kind of era of cosmic horror. Um, And, you know, not necessarily in a bad way because, you know, those are fun films, but yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But Um, it is sort of feel like reanimator sans reanimators, like sense of humor, because like, it's so funny that, that it is yeah. so like those movies, but it's it's absolutely dead serious. Like there's no joy in it at all. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um and the little attempts at levity they fall flat. For yeah, me. they don't it doesn't um, it doesn't really work. Well, and can you imagine if Mouth of Madness didn't have humor, like how much different this movie would be and how the little touches of humor and sort of the winking and the enjoyment, the fun of it really makes this movie. Like you can tell Sam Neill is having a a goddamn blast (laughs) and we are too as the viewer. Well, if you think about like one of the most iconic moments for me from, from mouth of madness is both deeply frightening and hysterical. And it manages to do both, which is like, when he's dreaming and he's like, did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue? And then you wake up and everything's blue and he just starts freaking out. And that's both existentially horrifying, but also very immediately funny. Like, and again, Sam Neill is having a, you can tell he's like, all right, here it comes. Oh, yeah. I'm going to scream at this bus. Three, two, <laughs> it's great. I love it. Yeah. I, I love the look of absolute horror on the lady's face yeah. sitting next to him and just absolutely freaking out at his screaming. Again. Oh, it's good. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, oh, Jesus. Um, I, I don't know what else to say about this movie to start things off other than kind of jumping into the plot. But yeah. uh, let's but, do it. Oh, God. Let's. Uh, so this thing kicks off with something that all of us horror fans love. I mean, who doesn't love a good John Carpenter theme? Oh. Oh my God, this song, I think, we, so we've seen John Carpenter perform live twice. Oh, and this yes. song is always, it is a stone cold banger in the movie. It is even more of a stone cold banger yeah. live. Yeah, that's great. He is having the best time playing it. And I love, this is one of my favorite themes from him. Like maybe only beneath the Halloween theme. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of like how it fits into the movie, how, which one is my favorite. Cause like you have Halloween, you have the, the, the incredible music in uh, Assault on Priest 13, but like live, this is easily the best one. Like you're, it's great. It's so much fun. Um, and it's got a great guitar solo and you know me, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a great guitar solo. Like, you are. <laughs> yeah, it does. yeah. It's, um, yeah. Uh, and we get this with the credits of course. And, uh, the printing press, uh, printing, I think it's the Hobbs End Horror, uh, the uh, the paperback version, and mm-hmm. wow, that printing press is like extra violent. Um, yeah, it's just you're you're almost expecting just something horrible to happen as you're seeing all of this, but no, no, it's just a, a little tease of what's to come, I guess. Um, and we we kind of finish the the theme song and the credits are still going, but we start near the end of the story with this ambulance racing up to this institution, which I guess is probably some kind of amazing map painting. Um, you know, yeah, it's like, really cool. It's gorgeous. It, it makes me think a lot of uh, you know what we talked about way back when when we talked about Halloween three 
of some of those shots of the factory in the town. Uh, clear matte painting. This is not real. Um, but yeah, it's good. And we get our very first character here, John Glover's Dr. Saperstein, which is clearly a nod to uh, Rosemary's Baby. Because uh, yes. that was the, uh, you know, piece of shit evil doctor that they were sending her to. Um, <laughs> Although I kind of wish that he was played. I like I liked John Glover, but I really was hoping for Donald Pleasance to be in this movie. Like, I know he's not in it because I've seen it a lot of times. But I mean, like when I saw it, I'm like, where is Donald Pleasance? He needs to be here. He would be so, yeah. so good for a role. I think he was dead. Oh, well, well that, nice. that Thanks explains that. Up. I um, appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate you bringing that into our conversation. Um, he was either dead or dying at that point because his last movie was um, Halloween Six, mm. which was ninety five. That's or the Paul Rudd one, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which happens to be full disclosure. I I adore Halloween Six. Like it is my hot take. I love the 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 Cult of Thorn thing. I really it, my dream is to remake that movie. To, like it's a good idea executed poorly, and I'm like, let me do it because it, I this is such a good idea. Just let me do it. Just let me do it. Just let me do it. Well, I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> um, Sam Neill uh, is brought in in a straight jacket, and he's clearly resisting, and he fights with some orderlies. And Glover just he sees this every day, right? And he's yep. just like, okay, uh, put him in number nine. And yep, they totally unfazed. Yep. And one of the first lines from Sam Neill is, you know, sorry about the balls because he got a lucky <laughs> shot in on one of the orderlies. Nails that dude. <laughs> um, yep. And, and I love a little bit later when we see the orderlies walking back through the lobby, he's holding his stomach like you do afterwards. Yeah. Oof. Well, it's like, this is where a lesser director would play a gag and then be done. And Carpenter, like, establishes nope. that. And then they pay it off yep. as it goes. And it's, yeah. there's never, and nothing is by accident. Everything is, is intentional. And I think it shows throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I would say I, that's one of the things I love about this movie so much, which is that the jokes and the serious things, like, there's so many little sprinkles throughout the film where you're like, you see this thing and it might come back for a laugh later or it might come back for a scare later. You are never mm -hmm. sure what this little thing is going to manifest into. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, even like, like thematically, like, okay, so the first shot of the movie is literally the construction of a narrative, right? And then a map painting because the movie's about the difference between real and not real and like the boundaries between the real and the unreal. And I'm, I, I'm really in, lo in love with the like we've built we we've opened the book and here's the line between real and not real and that's going to be what we t what the story is about and without even saying anything we've already set the tone for what the whole movie's going to be and I I just love that and a lesser director maybe wouldn't do that so so yep. true yeah you'd get one of these people that you know they're they're very proficient but they're they're just a workman and yeah yep. It, they're just not putting any more into it than just we have a movie to make and here we go. So yeah, yep. absolutely yep. love that. Um, we cut back to Saperstein and you know, Sam Neill's got some of the other uh, patients a little riled up and he's like, you know, we need, we need a little music. 
He slides that. Not the carpenters, bar. too. Yep, it's the carpenters. <laughs> We've only just begun, and all of the patients sing along, and it's absolutely horrifying. Really and I, and and again, you know, the fun little nod of oh, ha ha ha. The carpenters. The carpenters. You yeah. get it. You get it. Yeah. Yeah. We're all on board for this one. But then the music dies. And there's this nice little at the window to his cell. And he gets up and he's looking around. And I love how his breath on the glass is just like the raptors in Jurassic Park. Yes. <laughs> It's all I can think of. Um, but then the lights in the cell behind him dim and you see this shadow walk behind him. And it's so fucking effective. And yeah. so we don't bad. know who this is, but um, he, he, Trent clearly shows some recognition and uh, this distorted voice tells him that it's not the ending and that he just hasn't read it yet. Uh, and then this hand just bursts through the glass and he, we get this montage of disturbing images that are basically just little snippets of things to come in the film and he's alone again. And well, we, um, we cut to uh, Dr. Wren showing up, who's some type of uh, doctor who's involved with this investigation of these disturbances that have been happening. Uh, I forget the actor's name, but you know he's he's a character actor who's been in a ton of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and just like most John Carpenter films, fucking great. Um, yeah, and uh, Saperstein leads him to the cell, and, you know, lets him know, hey, the only thing he's asked for in all this time is just a single black crayon, and get into the cell and we see what he's been doing with that crayon. He's been drawing crosses absolutely everywhere. Um, he's been doing There's, a little redecorating. More than could ever be accomplished with a single with black, a single black crayon. <laughs> like, like, he's, he's drawn on his face with a black Have you ever tried to draw on your skin with a crayon? Like, I love it. Yeah, Look, it doesn't work we're well, not in. But... He's not in your reality. In his reality, right, right. a single crayon can do all of that. Well, maybe um, he just asks for one at a time, and then it runs yeah. out, and he asks for another one. That could be. Um, I, I wonder sometimes, like, what? Like, John Carpenter clearly has kind of a low opinion of mental health professionals, because, like, <laughs> yeah, this is, like, this is another one who's, like, a little bit unhinged. Like, he's a little bit too intense. Not like Dr. Loomis, I shot him six times intense, but, like, <clears throat> yeah. you can tell. But- does he maybe not have a low opinion of the professionals themselves, but of the system? Like, it's like the system that failed Michael. It's the system that is failing him here. Not like singular doctors, but it does seem like he has some issues here that he needs <laughs> to work out. Um, is this the, I, I did not watch the movie today, so you'll have to bear with me, but I believe this is like, it's in this scene where the, 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 the first doctor like tries to ask him, ask the other guy, like, do do oh. you read Sutter Kane? It's like so awkward. And like that like, comes back at the end of the film. Oh, okay. You're like folding in on yourself with how awkward. This is this where is. he asks him, "Is he one of them?" Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. And it's like they start talking about like it's getting worse out there and all this stuff, and it's like mm-hmm. so ominous because you still you're like trying to look around the frame to see what they're talking about, like what's going on, right. what's going on. 
Love yeah, it. I love this kind of storytelling where it doesn't treat you like an idiot where you need all the exposition to tell you absolutely mm-hmm. everything that's going on. It understands that you're just smart enough to pick things up here and there from what's yeah. being sprinkled in. And that's perfect. It's, it's actually my favorite type of sci-fi where you're dumped in the middle of some kind of an epic story. And maybe there's a glossary at the end of the book, but maybe not. And you're just yeah. supposed to pick things up as you go along. Don't treat the audience like an idiot. Yeah. If you listen to the radio reports that are on and the televisions that are on and look at the papers, Mm -hmm. like you're, they're saying little pieces here and there, but they don't have that narration of being like, it was 1994 and the world was going to hell. It's like, you don't need that. You get it. You also like in, in horror and sci-fi genre fiction in general, like I feel like we are as an audience or as readers or whatever, like you have that first like 10 or 20 minutes where you can just tell me anything and I'm going to take it right. Like Mm -hmm. uh, the Christopher Nolan thing, like we can go into people's dreams. It just shut up. Like, yes, we can do it. Like, I don't care how it works. Like, fuck you like we're, we're doing this and it's okay because i don't care i want to hear a story and if you're telling me like these are the rules of the universe like mm-hmm. you can make them up it doesn't matter and i love that this movie is like doing that it's like okay here are the rules here's what's going on it doesn't really matter you're gonna figure it out as we go like and now we're off and the fun is in the mystery like i don't need it spoon fed to me like let me like you're saying like let me read the newspapers let me like overhear a snippet of conversation like it's it's more fun that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we can figure it out from there. Yeah. Um, Dr. Wren, uh, at this point, begins his interview of uh, John Trent. Uh, all along, we get these little drips and drabs in the conversation that there's very much something wrong going on out there. Um, and, you know, more with kind of the world at large, you know, like we've been talking about. Uh, Trent describes that he was a freelance insurance investigator who was uh, contracted to investigate the disappearance of Sutter Kane. And we get this awesome little scene, just the, it's a throwaway scene, but it very much establishes just who John Trent is. Uh, yeah. His character. I wrote down something, uh, a quote that he says here because I thought it was amazing. Cause he says, word of advice. If you want to pull a scam, don't make your wife, your partner. And if you do, don't fuck around behind her back. Iconic line, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I love that, like, transition, like, right into him lighting the cigarette. And, like, it's very, uh, like, noir. Like, the mm-hmm. guy is sweating. And you can you see this guy. And, again, like you were saying, they don't have to say, I'm the best insurance investigator. This term. Like, They just show you. Like, look at him. Sweating this guy, literally sweating this guy, turning oh, yeah. the heat up, fucking with yeah, him. Yeah, I love the little line about, boy, it's, it's really hot in here. You think we yeah. should turn on the air conditioning? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it. I'm fine. No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just, why do I have to be down here? And it's perfect. And you see, oh, this guy's like a total professional. Nothing gets by him. Mm-hmm. And, and we know all we need to know about who John Trent is without having somebody say, you're the best investigator we've ever seen, you know? Although we do get a little bit of that from the yeah, guy they, who contracted him from that job because they cut to the diner and, yeah. uh, you know, he's like, you know, why don't you just come work for me full time? You know, it'd be perfect. And then we get this line of I'm my own man. Nobody pulls my strings, which we'll, nobody we'll pulls get back my string. To, we'll get back to that later. Another little uh, sprinkling from mm-hmm. John Carpenter. Yes, it's absolutely perfect. And while they have this conversation, um, 
you know, it's that wonderful conceit of this conversation is happening. We're invested in it. But in the background, we see this guy with an ax come stumbling out of this uh, business across the street. He's got blood all over his white shirt and people are kind of running, screaming from him. But that's not the main focus, even though you can clearly see this is happening. And, uh, well, he approaches. It's like that perfect Hitchcock shot, too, where it's like it's all it's so suspenseful because these guys don't know, but we know. And it's like so <laughs> stressful to be like, look right there. There's a guy with an axe. Like, and it's so beautifully framed where you're watching that action between the two men. And it's it's so beautiful. And then is, he comes crashing through the window. And is that not the ultimate horror experience of like, he's right behind you, like holding a blanket to your face, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I talk. And we talk about this a lot. Like one of my favorite things about horror is like the scariest thing is that the the rules of reality no longer apply to you. The rules of your normal day to day no longer are right. So to use like The Exorcist as my big example, like the the thing that's scary about The Exorcist is not that this little girl is possessed by the devil. It's that little girls can be possessed by the devil. Like suddenly everything you know about how the world works doesn't. And so even in a non-supernatural way, like, if somebody smashes through the wall of a diner, like, what the fuck are you going to do? That is completely outside your normal day-to-day rubric for, like, interactions. And that's so terrifying because you have no way of, like, dealing with that. It's not something you've ever experienced. And so... And I think that I think that comes through very clearly in Sam Neill's reaction uh, as things uh, progress here. Uh, Axeman... Um, you know, he kind of hovers over him standing on the uh, on the table of the booth there. And you get this close up of his eyes with these weird double irises uh, because he's clearly being affected by something. And um, he just asks Trent if he reads Sutter Kane and you read Sutter Kane. Yep, The axe goes up, but he's blown away by a couple of cops. Standard um, cop shit, too. Yeah, just- yeah, yeah. And, and and Trent's reaction to all of this is just gasping and almost laughing at the situation as his buddy is like screaming and having a massive freak out across from him. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I thought you were, gonna, I mean, this is standard cop shit, but is it not more standard cop shit? in a few scenes where a cop was beating the shit out of a homeless man in the oh, yeah. alleyway for no reason. I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. they, they opened up on a dude with a whole bunch of people behind him, no check, nothing, just, all right. Yep, um, yep. Um, yeah, yeah, they're not like concerned about... Yeah, they're not concerned about catching somebody behind them, not at all. And no. then, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that scene with the dude in the alley yeah. in a little bit here. But... Um, we we next move on to this news report of riots breaking out because people couldn't get Kane's new book uh, and just all this shit, this watch through all I could think of is January 6th. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Oh yeah. Um, It's not that related to it, but also just people <sighs> just having totally. an extreme reaction that you normally wouldn't have to a particular scenario because of some undue influence. Just saying. The, um, well, and, and the madness of not getting what you want. 
right? Yeah. Like these people are going to tear the world apart because they didn't get this thing they felt entitled to. The, yeah, the entitlement. Um, the other thing that came to mind the last time I was watching it was the uh, the crush at the Astroworld Festival. And it's like everybody wants a photograph. Everybody wants to be as close as they can to the stage. Mm-hmm. And so there's no conception of like a shared experience. It's like I need this. I'm going to get it or mm-hmm. and I don't care who gets hurt. And I do feel like there's a, 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 a commentary on our relationship with media there about how people feel entitled to whatever it is that they want without any responsibility to the to the people around them. Um, yep. So, you know, on that note, absolute quick PSA. Uh, if you haven't already formulated a plan to vote, uh, find a way to do it in person. And please, for the love of God, vote for some pro-democracy candidates because holy shit. Um, Let's so, keep the scary shit on TV, please. Exactly. Like, like, on the, yes. like, I like it in the movie because it's pretend and we're all having fun. So Yes, I don't need to live this in the real world. I am so sick of living through the prequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Let's Jesus. end this. Jesus. Yes, um, please, God. So so back to the fun pretend stuff. Um, <laughs> Trent is uh, introduced here to uh, Jackson Harglow. Uh, and Linda Stiles, and uh, you know they break down uh, that their biggest account, uh, Sutter Kane, is missing, uh, along with his new book. And of course, Harglow is played by uh, Charlton Heston, just you know, kind of playing Charlton Heston. And uh, Linda Stiles, I, I can't think of the actress's name. I can't remember her from anything else, but she works well in the context of this film. Um, it's so funny that you said that because I was like, yeah, and, and like. Uh, Charlton Heston is playing this like scumbag to perfection. Then you're like, yeah, he's just being Charlton Heston. I'm like, you're not wrong. Actually, now that I'm thinking about just it, being he's just yeah. a dick. Like, yeah. I mean, it, there, there's plenty of great roles that he's had and, uh, you know, just, I'm not going to get into his personal politics. Uh, Cause he's great uh, here. Yeah. Yeah. He, he works for this. Uh, so yeah, we get Charlton Heston being himself here and a great moment from styles. I love the bit where she makes Trent put out his cigarette in her coffee mug. Love it. Um, and, and, and just the whole thing of he's somebody who doesn't necessarily, you know, read for fun and he's kind of introduced to what a big deal Sutter Kane is. You know, they got coffee mugs and posters throughout this publishing house. It's this is a big deal and everybody's having a massive freak out because this author is missing on the eve of the release of his great new book. Um, well, I also really but, like Styles's characterization too, because I think it would be easy to make her sort of like the damsel in distress type of vibe, but she's like so in control. She's like, I know everything that there is to know about this author. Mm-hmm. I'm like the, the second in command at this company, like, we're going to figure this out. Cause like, I know she just has, is in so much control until, until she's not, but you really like right. put a lot of faith in her. Well, and, and, and I may be reaching a little bit, but I do think that it's interesting that he thinks he's above this, right? <laughs> like he's like, this is trash. It's low. And it's like, well, it affects you anyway. And like that kind of feeds back into our, Hey, vote PSA just a second ago, where it's like, <laughs> yeah. you're not above it. Like, even if it seems silly to you, like these things do matter. And I think, so often genre fiction on an, on another piece of that is dismissed as being lesser than, and it's like, well, yeah. no, it's clearly connecting with people, right? Like yeah. Sutter Kane has reached people who are not being reached by anything else. 
Well, and as mm-hmm. you see in the book, once he, she says, you haven't even read it. So how do you know that it's beneath you? Yeah. And once he read it, he's like, wow, this writing's actually pretty good <laughs> when he's on the phone later. And you're like, right. yeah, of course it is. You didn't even give it a chance. So I, I love, too, that like Carpenter, as a clear admirer of Lovecraft's work, like let's <laughs> let's just leaving out the man for a moment. But yes. That that Sutter Kane is also based on another huge Lovecraft admirer in Stephen King, and yes. it's so cool to see this like fusion of these two guys and like yeah, definitely. Well, I, I actually wrote a question in my notes too. That was like they say in the movie, they're like, you can forget about Stephen King. Like Kane outsells him all, like literally calling out Stephen mm-hmm. King. And I was like, it's kind of kind of crazy that even thir- basically 30 years from now, King's still probably like the most prominent horror author that we have. And yeah. what a long, what a long career, a long and successful oh, yeah. career he's had. Well, I, you know, I think once, once in a while, uh, a genre creator breaks it into the mainstream. Stephen King with horror fiction becomes not just the most popular horror writer, but the most popular living writer, I think a period. I think more people read Stephen King than any other individual. Really? Interesting. And, and the only other thing I can think of like that, where something went from being kind of small to being huge is like Metallica. Whereas like Metallica starts out as this like, you know, Hesher thrash band. And, and now yeah. it's like, everybody listens to Metallica. Like, you mean you haven't heard understand man? Like, it's like, Oh, what you haven't read. You know, The Shining, like everybody reads The Shining or Salem's Lot or something like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a desire for that. Yeah. That kind of of other, that kind of deeper dive than what you're normally going to get. And I love Stephen King, so. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Same. I'm, I'm same page. Uh, haven't been quite as enamored with his stuff over the past 20 years, but that said, we have plenty to draw from. He got into a really dark place with kids and I just can't go there, man. I just, it's like, I read Dr. Sleep and there's like a, like five or six pages of torturing this kid. It just goes on and on. And I'm like, this isn't, I'm not having fun. And like, I, I don't mind being shocked or made to feel uncomfortable. Like that's what art's supposed to do sometimes. But like this mm. just feels like I don't feel anything other than gross. Yeah. Like I Yeah. Yeah, as much as I enjoyed that book that was disturbing and I'm glad that Flanagan was able to, you know, in some ways kind of improve a bit. Yeah. Just um, like you can do that without making me like it, it, it was less gleeful. Like Mike Flanagan made it like sort of horrifying, and in, in the in the novel, it feels almost gleeful. And like, I get that the point is it's supposed to be unsettling, but like, I was unsettled about two pages into a six page scene, and I didn't need any more than that. But um, you haven't read Sutter Kane yet, and he's really gonna fuck your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also true. I um, would read it too. <laughs> like it, it, modern cosmic horror, absolutely. especially if it's as well done as they make it out to be. Um, So it turns out that Sutter Kane's agent was the uh, guy that went ax happy. And um, he, he went nuts after reading a couple of chapters of the new book. Um, And then stop. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. uh, I just love the way that, um, that 
what is his name? Shit, I just lost it. Uh, Charlton Heston is like, oh, I thought you met his agent. Wasn't he the guy who smashed his way through the window and almost killed? Like, he's like, like that's an introduction, right? He gave you a business card. You guys are professional acquaintances. But he says it mm-hmm. in such a flippant way. Like, I, I understood you already met him. Like, no, that's that's not what happened. He attacked me in a public place. That's not meeting somebody. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's one, very one casual, more. right? He's so blasé about it. Like, well, whatever. It happens. Everybody's been attacked by the agent at one point or another. <laughs> yup. Um, yeah, Styles kind of lays it all out at this point after they leave the office. Uh, Kane's been getting kookier, and uh, if they don't find him, uh, let alone the book, you know, everybody's kind of fucked. Their, their whole, you know, empire, uh, publishing empire here, is kind of built around his work. And, uh, you know, they already have contracts to publish this thing in 18 languages. There's this huge rollout, movie rights and everything else. Um, they need to find Sutter Kane. And Trent's kind of unconvinced. He, he just thinks this is all some kind of publicity stunt. Um, but Styles suggests that he reads some of uh, Sutter Kane for some perspective. Um, and this is where we get to John heading home and he sees some posters for the Hobbs End horror. He's kind of looking at him and he, he hears this noise from down the alley. And here's this cop uh, beating the shit out of some dude who was just trying to leave some graffiti on the wall. And we can't Laying quite. Them out. Yeah, we can't quite see what the guy was writing yet. Uh, that will come later. But uh, the cop turns around and, you know, asks him if he wants a little tube, buddy. Um, and he just, he keeps on walking. walking. You know, well, cops, cops gonna cop. Um, yeah. yeah, pretty standard stunt. Like, that's the thing, too, is like living in a city. I mean, we try really hard not to be bystanders. And that is definitely someplace where I'm going to end up either arrested or certainly in trouble. But like, um, you see stuff that's like shocking like that on a regular, relatively regular basis. And it's hard not to be a nerd to it after a while where you're just like, well, yeah, there's some guy screaming on the corner. They, you know, that's Hollywood. People scream on the corner. Like, well, yeah. And isn't that this kind of the strength of this movie, which is that no one kind of realizes that reality is crumbling on itself because madness has become commonplace. And I feel like we're seeing that today, unfortunately. Back to the please vote sort of thing. When madness is is becoming a reality, we need to change reality so it's not mad anymore. Otherwise, we all lose ourselves. And the stuff that would have seemed insane a couple of years ago is like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's just how it is. It's pretty mainstream now to a certain degree. It's terrifying absolutely terrifying. horrifying please for the love of god vote yeah, like your life vote. depends on it because it probably does because it uh, does um oh jesus uh so uh, trent's back home and he's speaking with robbie again on the phone again convinced that it's all a scam um and the next day uh he goes to a bookstore uh which has been overrun by one of these mobs he has to step over a bunch of overturned stands and so on. And he's like, okay, I'm going to pick up a few of these, uh, you know, Sutter Kane books. And he's approached by this dude with, you know, potentially the worst acne ever, or yeah, just open sores on his face. Um, yeah. And the guy tells him, I can see, you know, he sees you. And he's like, well, 
Calm, I said hi. Um, great. <laughs> His response is so funny. Yeah, this is our first little introduction to, okay, there's something from sort of outside of reality that is observing Trent at this point. And uh, this is where we get Trent on the phone with Robbie again, uh, basically describing the plot of the movie and most cosmic horror in one sentence about yeah. how, you know, it's a bunch of slimy things in the dark and everybody's going mad and turning into monsters, right? It's all about mm -hmm. the guy who descends the dark staircase into the bowels of some building and discovers an ancient cult and loses his mind. Um, that's, that's cosmic horror in a nutshell, right? Yeah. I also love that, the, that this major publishing company, this massive multinational publishing company was like, go buy the books yourself. <laughs> they, <laughs> right. Give him a couple of these books. They yeah. have them right there. There wasn't a stack that Styles was able to just like, give him. Take one. Yeah. <laughs> like, for research. Um, but sure. I know that <laughs> when I saw this movie the first time, or, or, you know, as I was aware of it, watching it, you know, as a teenager and stuff, I was like, who would go into a bookstore and, like, knock stuff over and throw a fit? And then I worked in a bookstore during the pandemic, and more than once I had people come in and throw books and knock tables over and have a fit. And so it is very much something that, that like, hits home. It, it People yeah. go to places they associate with knowledge and with information to disrupt that if they feel like they're not being seen or heard. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's even so much that is that, you know, people in the past two, three years are at odds with their perception of how reality should be. And yes. when they encounter a situation where things are not the way they want them to be and are confronted with the reality that thing, you know, things are the way that they are, they want to throw a fucking fit. Yep. Mm -hmm. And sorry, but some of these things are not changing back. No. And we're, we're and be... yeah. I, I don't know what to tell you, but you have to accept the reality that is clearly in front of you if you are going to be able to survive in the world. Right. <laughs> and that that silencing stories that are that are exposing that objective reality is not solving any problem and you, nope. that's just you not dealing with the problems that, that are there um i know we had uh we had several petitions and people yelling and stuff about us taking i was in charge of the children's department and they didn't like one of the displays we had and i was like i'm not taking them down i'm not doing it like there are little queer kids out there who need to know that the world is okay and that they're going to be okay and that there's nothing wrong with them and I be goddamn before I'm going to take that down for your snowflake little ass who doesn't want, oh, I don't want my kids to know about gay people or know about racism. Like, I'm sorry. It's here. It's a problem we have to deal with. It. And naming the problem is the first part of dealing with it. So, and, and there's a huge amount of struggle about literature that is reaching young people mm -hmm. that is just acknowledging these problems exist. And people don't want to acknowledge the problems at all. And that's such a theme in the film about Trent not wanting to acknowledge what's really slide mm -hmm. until it's it, far, far too late. It's amazing how prescient this uh, <laughs> particular. I feel like film I didn't even realize how is. much it was until we started talking. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's uh, well, that's part of the fun about talking about fucking horror movies, man. Yeah. They, they are totally. such a window into, you know, other issues in the world. And they always have been. Absolutely. And always have been. Yes. <laughs> and people will discount them like crazy because they don't fit into a particular little box of what they think a film should be. And that's why horror fans need to be people that review horror films. Yes. Because traditionally 100%. they have not reviewed well because it's somebody that thinks it should be this little, you know, art house fever dream instead. And those are fun. And when they combine with horror, even more fun. But, um, you know, just watch the complete works of David Lynch, right? Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, ultimately, um, yeah, man, it, don't yuck somebody else's yum here. <laughs> No, and and Carpenter specifically has always been like a, a pretty profoundly political filmmaker. I mean, like that mm-hmm. the, those themes have always been present, even from the beginning. You know, looking at um, not so much in Halloween, but definitely in The Fog, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, Escape from New York. Like these are films mm-hmm. that have a very pronounced, I feel like, strongly anti-capitalist message. Yeah, but like about how like treating people poorly creates these long running problems. Literally the whole plot of the fog is about how we fuck these people over. And until we make that right, they're going to keep suffering. And all of us are going to suffer until this is addressed. Right. Uh, like, they live at its most blatant, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. Between Carpenter and Romero and yeah. Um, these are definitely people that have something to say. And <laughs> just dig a it's just barely even well, yeah. below the surface it is very much front and center in so many of these films all right and they live it's not even subtext it's literally the text of the, the film. film it's right yes. there mm-hmm. <laughs> yep uh oh god f fucking horror uh so yes uh <laughs> trent uh starts digging into these books and he's basically reading and smoking and reading and smoking uh, this, this dude goes through a shit ton of cigarettes in the film. And I'm interested to know if there is an actual account. Uh, there probably is oh, yeah. somewhere out there. It's um, like the last gasp of, of cigarettes in movies too. <laughs> like you don't really like, it's one of the last films I can think of where somebody is smoking through like the whole movie. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. It's kind of his shtick. Um, yeah. And this is where we get into one of my favorite parts of this film. It is one of my favorite tropes in film, especially horror, uh, in uh, somebody that um, is snapping out of a dream, but is still within a dream yeah, and all all that bit, because um, he's dreaming of the cop beating the guy in the alley. And the cop is now deformed and again asks him if he wants some to. Yeah. And we can see the graffiti is finished. You know, I can see. And um, yes, he turns around and there's a group of people, including the uh, Axeman agent from before. Who uh, tells him, you know, he sees you. Uh, and the people just kind of circle him and ax him to death. Uh, and as this is happening, we get one of those little montages again, along with this lady with a deformed face who's eating pieces of the ax man. Um, and he snaps awake 
in a big start and the camera just moves over and there's the cop next to him and he has another freak out and wakes up again. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, one of my favorite tropes. (laughs) And from that point on, you never, you can never be sure that what you're seeing is where, where the line of, of trans reality is. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I again, I'm a sucker for like, Little things that serve the big theme. I love that, mm-hmm. like, from there, was he still dreaming? Like, what's going on? And, and, and you never, ever, ever get another gravity moment. Like, this is real. Like, here we are in the real world through the whole rest of the film. And yep. that's fantastic. You get people trying to proclaim that it is. Yes. But uh... <laughs> aggressively trying to claim oh, that, yes. they're, that they're so many times going true. forward. Um. So yeah, uh, now it's at this point where he notices something with the cover art on the books and he starts ripping off the covers and cutting them up and, you know, and doing his little tangram shit, uh, putting them together. And, uh, well, guess what? It's the state of New Hampshire. He has created a map. Uh, this take- made me think of like something Taylor Swift would do on her record. Like, I feel like this is like... This is totally, I get why he thought it was all a put on because this is such like a PR move to be like, well, you have to buy every book and then Mm -hmm. rip the covers off and make a map. Like it is a genius marketing boy. Oh yeah. Is it a a Taylor Swift thing or, cause I don't think she's ever done anything like that. I think that the Taylor Swift stands just keep saying she's doing that. Like they just keep inventing these conspiracy theories. Well, they're doing it on their own. They're doing it. But like. I, very well every, could be. <laughs> when I watch it though, I'm like, damn, that's a great that's idea. A good like, idea. like I wish that I like I do when I make like uh stuff for, for my bands and stuff, I'm always trying to like hide there's so much work that went into like the last record I did of like there's so many little hidden things that nobody will ever find them because it turns out nobody cares. Like somebody cares. You have to be Sutter King, like you have to be Stephen King sized. Um I highly recommend anybody watching or listening to go look, um, there's a great little mini doc on YouTube about a band that pretended to be Green Day, faking a fake Green Day album. And it's it's wild, because they do all of this, like, like hidden stuff on Instagram and, like, like little snippets of songs. And, and, and people thought it was really Green Day doing this record, and they finally had to come clean. It's just a really great look up fake Green Day. I'm sure you can find it. It's fantastic. That's funny. That's fucking funny. Uh, yeah, the, the closest thing that I get to doing shit like this is occasionally putting my photo or Nicolas Cage's photo into a kitchen design. Uh, and I, I've got to have a, I've got to have a client who's going to have the right temperament to, you know, potentially yeah, see know. something like that in the background. I, I there, there's gotta be a bit of a vibe check at some point early on, yeah. but for the right client, it's fucking funny. Yeah, um, I love it. Yeah. Uh, so he takes his findings to the publisher arcane, which I think we completely glossed over oh, the yeah. arcane being sort of a play on uh, Arkham uh, a little yes. bit. Um, it, there's plenty of uh, these little nods throughout this film. And I'm sure many that I have completely missed, but uh, you know, he, he shows them the map. He's got the transparency. I'm surprised they didn't break out the overhead projector. Uh, but, uh, you know, Harglow says, um, you know, he's got nothing to hide. Uh, he, he just wants his book and he, uh, decides he's going to send styles along with Trent to New Hampshire to find Kane. Cause you know, he, he wants his person along. 
uh, for the ride. And then we cut to the car and we're driving through, you know, um, farmland. And Trent's just kind of sort of muttering the lyrics to uh, America the Beautiful and not well. Um, no. And for whatever reason, he has one of those little clown horns. I literally things. put that on my notes. I was like, who carries that in their glove box? What is I that from? I don't understand why that's there. <laughs> but uh, Styles is sleeping in the passenger seat, and he thinks it's going to be funny to just, you know, blast this in her ear. And she wakes up in a big start and grabs this bag of chips and smacks them with them. And they're flying everywhere. And, uh, you know, similar to um, Sam Neill's accent in this scene, because it's all over the board. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes he sounds like he's fresh out of New Zealand and other times not so much. It's uh, don't know what's up with that other than, you know, just growing pains of. <laughs> You know, getting to be a bigger actor, I guess. I don't know. Um, it is, but it is super funny how, how like he slips in and out because he's usually in such control. But mm -hmm. you know, uh, the America the Beautiful really got to him. Yeah. He was like, yeah, Not my America. Yeah, it could be. Um, he wants to but, go yeah, the, the gist of this scene is that they're lost on their way to find the fictional town of Hobbsen. Uh, and they, they cut to later on at night, it's dark. They're having a conversation about how sane and insane could easily switch places. Um, yeah. Which, which is such a, like a, a, a proto Mike Flanagan thing. Like you're like little Mike Flanagan is sitting there with like a notebook. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're like, this Take is notes. great. Like, I'm going to write monologues. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah, I like a couple of things. I wrote down a couple of the things that she said, which she said, um, what scares me about Kane's work is that is if reality shared his point of view, then reality is what he thinks. And then she also said, he said, no, this is reality. And she was like, reality. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, a reality. She said, a reality is just what we tell each other it is. You could find yourself locked in a padded cell wondering what's happening to me, which is such a fun little hey, dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But also just like obviously kind of the point of the movie, which is what is reality? Yeah. How do you know what you're in? What uh -huh. you're experiencing is real. What is real? You know, like that's such a broad question that they really nail down into these tiny little moments um, that continue to serve that bigger plot. Well, and, and, and I think it's easy to forget how subjective what we call reality is. Like there are things that we assume are to be real that really are just a collective decision. I, I, I think about money, for example, like money right. only works because we all say it does. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't actually do anything, but we, because we have all agreed to this shared delusion, like it, and I think it's interesting to start talking about like, okay, if that's, true what else is like that what are we not seeing that's that's maybe uh not as real as we'd want it to be or more real than we than we pretend it is cough climate change um like just ignoring it does not change the fact that it's real um right, right. very much sticking our heads in the sand uh yeah. for the sake of <clears throat> reality um yeah uh and then a fun little playoff of this conversation they switch places so she's driving and she um, drives yes <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, So as she's driving along there, she sees a boy on a bicycle and he looks freaked the fuck out. He's clearly pedaling away from something. And then she sees him again a moment later, except he's an old man on a bike. And then he disappears again. And next thing you know, she's hitting this old man boy on the bike and he's on the ground and muttering how he can't get out. He won't let me out. And John runs back to get a blanket from the car and she looks back after him. And then the boy is gone. He's back on the bike pulling away. I really love the, Sorry, I stepped on you right there. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I, I really have nothing important to say about that. I really love the use of dream logic and dream imagery in this sequence. Like, as they cross the, the barrier between the real and the unreal, uh, and we've talked already about, you know, dreams and waking up and, and, mm-hmm. and, and falling asleep, that this reminds me so much of what James Wan will do years later with Insidious, where you're using the language of nightmares to really effectively connect with us. And so the prosthetics that make that guy look old are, are not great because you can tell that there is a young man under there, but I think that's intentional. I think it's supposed to be slightly unreal, slightly uh, askew. And I love that a, a lesser director wouldn't have the restraint to do something like that, to let it fail from a technical standpoint in order to serve the greater theme of the work. And, and make it really unsettling because when he looks back and he's on the bike, it's so fucking scary. It's oh, it's so, off-putting. It's so unpleasant. Yeah, and he's like kind of smiling and you're like, oh, don't do mm-hmm. that. Yeah, please don't smile at me. Yeah, don't, man. Also, the kid, the, 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 even as an adult, even as this old withered man, he's still got the playing card on the spokes mm-hmm. of the bicycle. It's such a Stephen King, like oh, it's such God, a Stephen yeah. King detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I love that. I love the little tosses. To like this is clearly an homage to that work, um, and and Stephen King sort of always has this obsession with the lost innocence of of youth and of like the youth mm-hmm. of being like ten to fourteen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Speaking of you know great homage films, uh, you know Summer of '84. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I am. My friend was in that movie, and uh, really? my my friend Rich Summer is the villain in that oh, movie. Oh, um, holy shit! And it was yeah, funny. He's great. I, he's fantastic, and we I didn't know that he was an actor when we became friends, and so we saw that movie, and I saw him again a couple weeks after. I was like, "Dude, you scared the shit out of me!" And he's so not like that <laughs> in real life. Such a sweetheart, and I was like, I, I had no, I was like, no way ready for that. Um, great film. Everybody should watch that movie. It's oh so god, good. it's so good. Yeah. Um, so I love the comment about how when we get to the next town, we'll tell the cops. It's it's yeah. kind of the we'll <laughs> leave a, a note. We'll leave manslaughter a note. not important. Kid, the guy yeah. was obviously fine. Whatever, it's fine. Uh, yeah. yeah. So they get back in the car. Send an insurance investigator. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so they drive off, and darkness becomes complete darkness. And Styles pokes her head out the window and she looks down, seeing no ground, no road. And then all of a sudden there's a flash of lightning 
and they're in the sky and all of a sudden through the sky to a covered bridge and there's so much flashing light and you know like warning for epileptics at this point it is all these flashes she's clearly out of it and next thing you know they're rolling out of the bridge into broad daylight and she slams on the brakes and it's like looks behind her she can see through the bridge see daylight on the other side it's nuts i love that trench is like oh we're here yeah i oh i slept through the night thanks for driving and Um, she's like so freaked out he's like yeah cool but isn't that like again horror cinema using real life to scare you because we've all been driving late at night on the highway Mm -hmm. and you you do have that sort of dissociation feeling where you're like i've been how long have i been driving you know how how many years have i been on this road even just driving to work in the morning and having one of those moments where it's like i don't remember the past three miles and here i I am the last time i was conscious of what i was doing and yes exactly because you're just going through the motions it's the muscle memory yeah well i also think like for me the one-two punch of that kid being like they won't let me leave and then going through such an experience like that, that's like one of the scariest things to me because I think like the concept, I think when you think of horror, it's like you can hide or you can run, right? And mm-hmm. But if you're in the situation where they won't let you leave or you're in a place you don't even know how you got there, how do you escape it? It's like the horror becomes inescapable because you can't leave. You don't even know where you are. So how would you escape something? And like that I think is such a like, a foreboding well, yeah. thing to think about and and tying it into like one of our favorite films uh grave encounters like the scariest <laughs> part of grave encounters is they open that door spoiler stop yeah. now because if you don't know literally skip forward Pause 30 seconds because i really don't yeah, want to yeah. fuck this up for you but they, they open, open that door. The door and the the hallway is there and it's not even outside anymore what and the the whole rules have been rewritten now and you're Mm -hmm. fucked like you can't go how do you fight the fact that reality has changed there's another one uh called mr jones and they're waiting for the sun to come up and it's 6 a.m it's 8 a.m it's 10 a.m it's 2 p.m and the sun won't come up what do you do now if your plan was we just got to make it through the night well the night's not ending (laughs) you're fucked yeah time for a new plan Yep. What are you going to do? The rules of reality are different and you don't know what they are. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> and that's so well, chilling to me. At this point, Styles is just kind of pissed about the situation, you know, because they look over and they see the sign, Welcome to Hobbs End. And, oh, hey, you found it. Get on. It's just like, so you're driving. <laughs> yeah. You're driving. Yep. <laughs> they, they switch again. Um, and they drive through town and Trent again, still totally convinced this is all set dressing this. They found some town, they replaced a bunch of signs like Halloween three and, you know, ultimately, ultimately, you know, we are looking at, you know, some little town somewhere where we're just kind of lost, but a good production value. Great. Um, And they're looking in this um, uh, antique store 
and or rather Trent is, but Styles is just kind of looking around, not believing that they are where they are. And he is commenting on where do they buy all this old shit to, you know, dress the shop up. And she sees this dog terrified running away from this pack of kids. And uh, of course, he doesn't see them. But um, and of course, these kids have sores all over their faces, too, you know. Because, yep. well, we just got to lean into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he sees nothing. No, no. Well, and I think it speaks to this whole fear that I think I certainly have. And I think a lot of people have of like the isolation of madness. Like if mm-hmm. you started to lose your grip on reality, you're alone. Like nobody, if, if, if I start seeing something and you can't see it, like I, that's so terrifying that like, not only do I have to now deal with these kids and the dog and all this shit, but I'm also completely alone on that. And I don't know if it's real or not. Um, I feel like I should have worn a shirt that just said themes because I keep being like, it serves the themes of the book. And I love it. Um, nope. Nope. It's, uh, the, the conversation speaks for itself. That works. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, they decide to mosey on from there, and we pull up to the Pikmin Hotel. Again, nice Lovecraft nod, you know, Pikmin's model. Um, and, well, Styles, as they enter the building, starts, uh, well, before they do even, starts pointing out all the little details from Kane's book. We've got the greenhouse where the townsfolk saw something with you know, a bunch of tentacles writhing around and uh, there was uh, all sorts of unusual plants, you know, a nod to the color out of space. Um, yeah. Love it. <laughs> One of my favorite things, and, and, and Madeline can tell you, I, I, I am such a sucker for like the the untold story, the book within the book, the movie that you can't watch, the books you can't. Mm-hmm. So like I I watch Mouth of Madness and I'm pissed because I really want to read these books. Like I really yeah. want to hear this story. Like and I'm so angry that they don't exist. And of course they could never be what they are. Yeah. Because nope. that's and, and and that's just another tenet of um cosmic horror. Yeah. Just exactly. So this this horrible fear of the unknown that's just you are not able to describe this horror and what you're seeing. it is more terrifying because of it. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. it's so alluring to me. Like I, I desperately want to read the Hobbs and horror and hear about this, you know, this old woman and all of this. It turns her husband into coleslaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love it. Uh, you so, get a little bit of that. You get a little bit of it. Oh, yeah. Just a taste. But that's the thing. It's this, these these tantalizing little glimpses into a story you'll never be told. Yeah. Um, and, and so much and they, the better for it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so brilliantly executed here. Yeah. Um, and it, they, they get into the lobby and she's picking out all these little things from the book. Hey, loose board there. And he steps on it and it creaks. And, you know, there, there's this painting and, you know, it's basically just a couple standing, you know, by a river in, for now. Um, yeah. I love that but, painting so much. Oh, yeah. And, and it's a nod to a, a very specific painting, and I can't think of what it is. I'm sure somebody has written something about it out there, but I am awful at art history. Um, I should know this, and I'll be killing myself later about it. But uh, you can leave it in the comments. I'll, I'll come back and be like, somebody, I did. please do. Because <laughs> I, I need somebody to point this out to me. 
Uh, and they go back to the desk and uh, Styles hits the bell and enter the great Francis Bay as Mrs. Pickman. Perfect. Uh, Mrs. Mrs. Chalfont uh, from Twin Peaks. Uh, <laughs> love her. She's great. She's, yeah, so, she's great. so good in this, this role. Uh, apparently at Comic-Con uh, this year, uh, somebody had like a scale model of, you know, the final evolution of Mrs. Pickman from this film. Uh, and it was amazing. Oh, sick. <sighs> I wish you could have seen that. Yeah. yeah I think it that... might have been because John Carpenter was there, too. I, sw- yeah. I thought it was maybe like the real maybe like a real maybe casting that was of it, it or something. Yeah. Yeah. The, but very cool. Before. Very cool. Yeah, there, there's plenty of photos of it out there. I just uh, probably need to read into it a little bit more. Um, as Trent is speaking with Mrs. Pickman about getting a room, uh, Styles turns around and she noticed that the painting has changed. Uh, you know, first, the couple has turned around so that their backs are to them. And then she looks again and the woman has turned back to look at her. And you can clearly mm-hmm. see at this point that this is the woman uh, from the montages that we keep seeing this lady over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super chilling. And I love the, the, the sense that time operates in sort of nonsensical ways here. It's something they'll play with. I mean, they, they already established that with the kid on the bike and they'll play with it again. Um, in a, in a in a moment when we get to the the next sort of great location of the film um but i i like the idea that like the painting is constantly changing but you're never when you're looking at it like the sto- mm-hmm. like the world is shifting anytime you're you're not paying mm-hmm. immaculate attention to it yeah. things can shift and I, I i think that's really horrifying but also deeply fascinating um and i really love that yeah and this is where we get our first conversation about this is reality. Um, you know, Trent's like, Hey, I'm sure you saw what you thought you saw, but that that just, that kind of shit can't happen. You know, he's like knocking on the dresser. This is what's real. And he's like, okay, if we're actually in this book, I'm going to open up this window and there's going to be this 250 foot tall, you know, Byzantine church with, you know, great big spires and golden onions on top and all that bullshit. And look, the fucking bar empty. Yeah. No worries. And she's like, nah, 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 nah. You're not paying attention to the yeah, book. Not- Other side of the You're building. reading comprehension is off Trent. Yep. Yes. Yes. She opens That's up the such window. a good part. And there's the church as advertised. Oh, uh, it's so perfect. If you, uh, if you both, if either of you were Trent, would you still and seeing and only seeing what you know that he saw and not what Styles saw, would you still think it was like a PR thing at this point? Because he hasn't necessarily seen anything specifically spooky, but I do think that the existence of that church would kind of make me go. Okay. Oh, no, no, I, I was out after the kid at the bookstore. <laughs> okay. Nope. No, no, no. I had, you, here's you, the thing. Even if it is a PR stunt, these people are crazy. I don't need <laughs> any part of this. I'm, I, I'm freelance. I can just be like, it's cool. I'm, here's your check back. I'm not doing this. You can get somebody else. Mm-hmm. I don't need this. Nope. I'm out. Yeah, I think just finding the town itself 
would absolutely be a yeah. yeah see you you you're gonna get all the way to Jurgen Prock now. I'm not. I'm yeah, not, I'm probably. I'm, I'm tapped. I'd be like, I don't see what that church is about. It's cool. I want to take a photo of it. Certain mon pas. I have no piece <laughs> of this. I'm gonna go inside and see what that little kid was nope. doing. Nope. Yep. So they decide. Okay, we got to explore this. Yeah, shit. you got to go now. But if you're yeah. here, you got to go see, see the church. I go see it. So, so they park and they're walking up to the church and she's reading from the book, basically all this very, very uh, Lovecraftian style lore uh, about how, you know, there was originally a stone church built there, but then the black church came and swallowed it up. And yeah, yeah. That, and and yep. this, I, I just remembered something about the music. So I'm, I, mean, I should have talked about this at the beginning and I just didn't remember. <laughs> um, because I was like, what she's reading feels like it should be a, a heavy metal song. Like it should have like heavy metal music behind it. And that reminded me that I had read this interview with John Carpenter about how they wanted to use Enter Sandman at the beginning of the movie. And that they couldn't okay. get the rights to it. And so that's why that, I mean, if you go back now and you listen to the Mouth of Madness theme, you can hear the influence. Like, it's it's pretty present. And it's like, oh, cause what is that song about? It's about dreams. It's about falling asleep. And and isn't that so much like the, the dream imagery again yeah. coming back? Um, Plus that song slaps. Too. But the song's great. I mean, they're both great songs. But that, um, uh, what a shame it was that we could, that, that, we couldn't get those two artists together. That would be um, cool, yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the John Carpenter Metallica hookup, we really need that. It's not I mean, too late, get, guys. You get John Carpenter in churches, so at least you get some synth pop yeah. Carpenter. Uh, yeah. Which, which also works for me. But... Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been campaigning on Twitter for a John Carpenter directed Gary Whitta written video game. So ooh. if you all want to jump in on this campaign, I feel like. We can get this going. I, I would absolutely support that. Uh, and I that love, works for me. I, you know, I love that he's doing scores for other films now. Like, I really... Uh, they did a truly atrocious um, Firestarter uh, remake recently, and it was bad. I couldn't finish it. It was that bad. But the soundtrack was incredible, because it's John Carpenter, and you're like, well, you got you know one of the greatest living composers to do this incredible thing, and Nobody does that kind of ominous synth music better. I, I just don't. Um, and the, the marriage of him and, and um, Boy Harsher for the new Halloween and then Ghost for the last Halloween. Like you can see these are artists that are influenced and, 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 and it works really, really well. And I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so as they're walking up to the church, scenes from the book start playing out in front of them. We have uh, some angry townsfolk uh, driving up to rescue a stolen child. And uh, you get this uh, cool little scene of the doors flapping open and closed with the kids standing oh, behind. And uh, instead they open back up and Kane is standing there. So enter Jurgen Prock now. Now, um, what an entrance. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. When I think about like the best entrances of a of a character of a villainous character in a movie, it's got to be one of the best. Oh yeah, because he's got a creepy ass look on his face. Uh, you get all the flashing lights, and then 
Um, yeah, uh, he's six a bunch of Dobermans on the townsfolk, uh, who who try to fire off a few shotgun blasts, but you know, and there's people in some clearly heavily padded clothing getting mauled on the ground, and you know that's cool. It, it, it all works. It's it's all in slow mo and everything. And uh, at this point, if you're Trent. This is where I I start to break from. Okay, this is all put on. Yeah, um, like we should leave now. We should probably yeah. leave. If you haven't broken from this at this point, there yeah, something's not right. But of course, this is the way he's written. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um yes, uh and then where hmm. they go back to the hotel, right? Well, I think there's. Where does the little girl come? That's right here. That's right. It, here. it is right here. Okay. Yeah. Oh yes, because they're just about to get into the car. Um. Yeah. The little girl says to Styles that uh, she sees. Um. And oof, those sores are fucking awful. Um. And they cut right back to the hotel. Trent is totally convinced that this is all staged. And they're going to and that they basically just want him to go back and tell the world about Kane's haunted little town. He's like, well, fuck that. Yeah. And yeah, uh, this is where Styles finally breaks and tells him that Harglow sent Kane off on this publicity stunt, but he never showed up at the destination and that Trent and Styles were never supposed to find anything or anyone. And that's how she knows that this is really happy i i i love again the we are in the middle of another story so those parents show up for their kid and it's like that's all the story we get that's all the piece of like what is sutter kane doing to this town and i love how how ominous it is to sort of come into the middle of the story like that and then to have um you know, the little girl has pushed Styles down the 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 rabbit hole, maybe farther than than Trent is, and it's so chilling to watch because you know that he is right behind her, and he's gonna lose his grip on this as well. But he's you can't help him. You know, you can't, and, it, and it's already too late at this point. Like we know, yeah. it's it's too late. I also thought there was sort of a subtle indication that, like, okay, so this is where. Sutter Kane comes from like he was this kid right because the doors of the kid the kid the kid and then it's mm-hmm. interesting this implication that like he too was created interesting um and I really enjoyed that. Of that yeah but absolutely implied I would say yeah. um yeah uh Styles tells Trent that you know only she and the agent knew what was in Kane's new book and that it was about the end this is this is it this is how the world ends um and trent tries to convince her to leave with him but to no effect um he she's not gonna go he goes downstairs to the lobby to find uh that the people in the painting are not looking so hot yeah (laughs) pretty pretty gnarly they're they a look like deformed. they're in they live. Yeah, yeah they look and, like and, they're yeah, in Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, they look like their head fell in the cheese bat, 
cheese dip yeah. back in 1957 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he, he's still not convinced that this isn't a put on. So he, he touches the painting to see if it's wet or anything. He like lifts he, it up off the wall. Uh-huh. Looks behind and all that. And he, he uh, sparks up a cigarette and there's Francis Bay back at the desk telling him uh, to put out his fucking cigarette. Um, I feel like people have been telling him this throughout this entire movie. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and, isn't, uh, it, isn't it such an interesting moment of like, we all know this like rational, like skeptic guy who like insists that everything's a scam and he's smarter than everybody and he can't see the thing that's right in front of him, but also is so disrespectful of everybody else's space and, and like wishes design. Like, you know, here's a guy who won't, everybody's trying to scam you. Everybody's trying to get one over, but he won't respect that you can't smoke here Yeah, like, over and over again. People have to remind him that like, you have to participate in society and and in reality and that reality is a participatory experience yeah um and i really love that here that even though uh he's trying to deny it like you are still part of this you're not separate you're part of this and that means you have to abide by the rules that we set yeah and you're not better than everybody and above them and are smarter than everybody you know yes even the freaky axe murdering hotel yeah (laughs) Um, yeah. So, uh, as he approaches the desk to put it out, you know, she's given this little kick to this moaning thing behind the desk and she's not looking so hot herself. Um, Mm -mm. and this is where styles runs by in the background and, you know, he takes off after he opens the door, but she's peeling off in the caddy at this point. Um, and we we cut at this point to a naked Mr. Pickman shackled to Mrs. Pickman's Oh, it's ankles. so gruesome. Yeah, and she just gives him this little hush. Um, yeah, it's and, so creepy. Oh yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty off putting. Uh, and we just we move on to Trent just walking downtown because he's like, well, fuck else am I gonna do? I'm <laughs> I'm stuck here. I don't have a car anymore. Yep, yep. And he walks downtown to investigate since he's stranded. And um yeah, we cut to him in the bar and he's drinking a beer and I'm like, did he just serve himself? There's nobody right. in this bar. There's nobody here. Where did he get this beer? He doesn't have yeah. respect for anybody, so he just took it. But but then and that kind of lends itself to the idea that, you know, he continues to think that this is a put on because there's mm-hmm. nobody there. There's there's He's nobody staffing this bar. Mm. Yeah. He's like, I'll put it on their tab, you know. Exactly. Um, the yeah. scene that follows is so chilling too because it what it always reminded me of, even as a teenager, is like when you are having a dialogue with an NPC in a video game. Like, it seems like this guy that he's talking to has a script that he's reading from. And mm-hmm. he's not really responding to what Trent is saying to him. Like, he's just... And it's yep. so, like, horrifying that, like, you're not... Like, what you want no longer matters. Like, what your your actions no longer have any real effect on the world that you're in. And it's... Nope, it, it's, you're just... You're part of the story, for good or ill. Yeah. And, 
Yeah, this is uh, the guy who was leading the mob outside of the church, and his face is a little bloodied from the altercation with the Dobermans. And he's just basically telling Trent he needs to get out while he still can. He needs to leave. Um, and uh, we we cut to, while this is going on, Styles going to the church. And I love how every time they park outside the church, they're super far away, even though you can tell there's parking with all sorts of lights and everything super (laughs) close but the whole idea is by parking far away when you see them exit their vehicle you can get the shot of the entire church in the frame right um interesting considering how that church is probably another matte painting um (laughs) the church is a is a real church in is it okay yes it's in um it's in eastern europe somewhere i don't remember anymore but i don't know uh so they composited a lot of it and they, and I think part of the thing is that they didn't really film them there. They like sent somebody to film the church, which is why okay. you never really see anybody except really close to the door or really far away. So I, I wonder if it's not a um, sort of a green screen thing too. Cause I remember when we watched it the last time I was like, where is this? This church is badass. And John Carpenter is a big fan of Pasadena which is not that far from where we are right now. And I was like, if that church is around here somewhere, I'm going to go find it. Yeah, if that church is in Pasadena, <laughs> we're going to go. I'm going to go to Pasadena and see this badass church. Fakink. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so as she's uh, walking up to the church, this ball rolls up behind her, and it's all the little kids, and they're looking extra creepy they're now. So creepy. And that dog is missing a leg. And she's like, who's your parents? Where yeah. do you live? And they're like, yeah, we live with you. And you're my um, mommy now. Yeah. And it's mother's little, day. Oh, oh it's so creepy. Yes. Yes. Uh, the little girl says today is mommy's day and she's got sharp teeth and blood everywhere. I'm convinced that this little girl chewed the leg off of that dog. I think so. I yep. think so. And she's yeah. so scared. There's something so frightening about children. <laughs> like, even regular kids can be fairly alarming. <laughs> but like, it's like what the 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 omen. You just put a little kid in a suit. A little kid in a suit is terrifying. <laughs> like, I don't want. It's because it's wrong. It's like they shouldn't be. Look at him with his tie. That's freaking me out, man. And these kids, even before they had sharp teeth, were terrifying. And so, um. I think, again, it, it comes back to, like, you should be able to control this thing, but can't. Yeah. Right? Like, a child should be something that you should pretty easily be able to get a handle on. Um, it shouldn't be this roaming pack of kids that chew legs off of dogs. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, like, again, one kid is not a problem. Uh, to, to use my favorite quotation about child's play, like, it's a doll. Step on it. Like, it's a little kid. Punt, like, I mean, honestly, like, one-on-one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mash this kid. Sharp teeth or not. Like... <laughs> Like, I have the reach, I got the size advantage, I have been way more fights than this kid, but like... What if it was three of us stacked on top? A feral kids is like a problem now. But can you take yeah. three of those kids stacked on top of each other? Stacked on top of each other, probably you take out the middle one, both, the top one's going to fall in the yeah. middle one. Especially if they're in a trench coat, you know, yeah, because ultimately... Yeah, to get into a movie, but like, but what are you going to do if this like, you know, pack of feral animals attacks you? I mean, that's how we took down woolly mammoths and stuff. It's like one person <laughs> is not dangerous, but a group of people is dangerous. 
true. Like the, so the children people, are learning. We should be afraid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Soon they'll be able to open doors. Like, like, <laughs> like Velociraptors. Yes. Exactly. Yes, yes. So, Again, going back to the Velociraptors. <laughs> yes. It all comes full circle. But like, uh, God. It speaks to this thing that should be normal but isn't. Yeah. Right. And that's mm-hmm. the language of nightmares is mm-hmm. this is your house, but it's not your house. Like things, things, these things are normal, but they're not normal. And there's something wrong. Yep, and you're breaking reality. Mm-hmm. And yeah. by the time you put your finger on what that is, in this case, sharp teeth gnawing off dogs' legs, it's way too late to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, not the biggest fan of the two planes of action here until things are a little bit more wrapped up because they cut back to Trent looking around the smallest hotel room in the world for styles. Yeah, like- what what's that? where is yeah, where could she searching a, a, a six by four room mm-hmm. for a human being for a human woman it should take you about eight seconds to establish that she's yeah. not here yeah and then we cut back to styles uh about to enter the church and she sees this wooden plaque that says any who dare enter this unholy site be damned forever and she just goes ahead and opens the door um you know how long like is forever really anyway yeah, I mean, that is pretty cool. Um, I'm just saying. I would have stolen the plaque and taken yeah. off at that point. It's wow. things are pretty clear. That, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I dipped. I'm not doing this. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that when she gets in the church, uh, it features torches instead of candles. And of course, we have an upside down cross because it is an unholy church. Yeah. Yes. Um. And she's kind of poking around and she opens this gross door to find a typewriter and a stack of paper alone at a desk. She's like, all right. School. Uh, I love that she, she's like, no fucks at all at that point. She's like, oh, yep. look, cool. That's what we came yeah, for. Yeah. She closes the door and steps away and hears the typewriter banging away and goes to open the door again. And there's Kane uh, just writing away. Uh, with a loyal Doberman by his side. As she gets a little closer to the doorway, this rando hand reaches down from the top corner of the doorway and grabs her shoulder and the door slams shut. Now, as she turns around in a start, there's no more door. So cool. Yeah. So, it's so it's, creepy. It's super effective. I love it. Um, and the the walls are... It's almost like the walls are just made out of gore. I don't know yeah, what it yeah. is. Gross. It, just like yeah. squishy. Yeah. That, they, that yeah. door with like the, that's like bleeding and like the woods all fucked up. Oh Gnarled. man. It's so mm-hmm. it's so gross. Yep. Um, so, uh, yes, Linda, nice to see you again. You know, you can edit this one from the inside looking out. Um, he, he tells her, you know, that he thought he was making it all up, but that they were actually telling him what to write. And that's where he looks over at that pulsating wooden door. You got this massive arched doorway with this wooden door that's just oozing goop and, you know, pulsing in and out and, um, you know, it's struggling to hold something back. Right. Um, and at this point, Styles is kind of in something of a trance. She's not really responding. She's not recoiling in horror. She's just kind of slowly walking up to his desk. 
and um let's see here kind of lost my place in my notes oh um but uh yeah he tells her that um this book is going to start the change it's going to allow everyone to see and uh it's basically going to let the old ones back into their reality this book prepares the way um and he kind of grabs her head and forces her face into the manuscript, which just glows and I guess uploads its contents into her brain uh, because she starts seeing glimpses of things to come uh, and things that came before. And it's again, one of these, you know, kind of gross montages that they do several times throughout this film. Um, and then when he pulls her back, her eyes are bleeding Um and they just kind of make out while there's this malignant style parasitic twin of a monster writhing on his back. Um, this Always is where it all starts. Malignant, Joe. It, it's, this is where it bring... starts, Madeline. This is where it all came from. Um, <laughs> we brought up James Wan once in this podcast. Yeah, We're going to bring him up again. Um uh, yeah, I, I always loved this scene uh, when I was much younger watching this film because I'm like, I, I don't get what this is on his back. But, you know, it's it's, I guess, well, just they, inf- influence from these old ones, I guess. And they never address it mm-hmm. again. No. Right. And that's it's so it's so effective because it's like, well, yeah, that's it, it's so scary. But like, we're not going to tell you, you never, ever get any closure on this. And I really love this scene because it asks you to look at a question I think a lot of creative people have, which is like, where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm going to sound like a little bit of a jackass for a minute. And I, I can't help it. It's just the way that it is. Because I jackass have to talk away. about the thing that I made. But I know I did a record with a group of guys a few years ago, and I have the tattoo from it, uh, that we wrote it all together. And I remember being like, I don't know where this is coming from. It's not coming from me. Like, it's like when you're all, you have your hands on a Ouija board and you don't feel like anybody's consciously moving it. Mm-hmm. And so when he says, I thought I was making it up, but it was them. And you know, that, that did he dream this into reality? Was he always being manipulated or is like the power of what he's creating so strong that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there is a sense when you are making something, when you're creating something that like, what if you lose control of it? And I wonder if that's something that people with kids feel, but I don't know, because God forbid that that should be me. But like, um, like, I hate to say it, but same. Um, (laughs) right. Like I, I, I send that blessing to you. God forbid. (laughs) Um, but like, when you no longer know when you're no longer sure where things are coming from. And I know that when I was writing the lyrics for that record that I was, I wasn't sure that this was stuff that I was thinking, or is it something that just served the story? And sometimes you get involved in something that you're making and the artistic choices become so obvious because you're just in a flow that it doesn't feel like a conscious effort. And that can be really fucking scary. If the stuff that's coming out is in any way frightening to you. And I know that there was stuff in that record that I was like, Oh, what? (laughs) Oh, oh, no, thank you. Um, and I, I love that 
there's a moment of questioning whether or not Sutter Kane is in fact malevolent or if he's being manipulated or if he didn't through no fault of his own is just a, an artist is just a dreamer who is now at the mercy of his creation. And that's such an interesting idea to me as an artist. I, I love that. Um, anyway, I like it. Um, <laughs> that's it's, that whole thing. It's, it's <laughs> potentially terrifying. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, from here, we cut back to Trent, back at the hotel again. And, you know, uh, it's 94 and he doesn't have a bag phone. Come on. Um, yeah, come on, dude. Get it together. Get it together, yeah. man. But he, he can't call out from the hotel for some reason. And I think this is, again, just him having that experience and thinking, okay, clearly this is a put on because they've cut the line, right? And he opens the door uh, to the hotel room and looks around the hall and steps back in. And before he's able to get back into the room, he's grabbed by Styles. And, uh, you know, what did I tell you in that first episode, Madeline? I, I fucking love horror movies where people pop out of the woodwork when they have no mm-hmm. possible geographic way of getting into the it's space. not possible. Yes, just like the dude in the gas station in Halloween 3. Mm-hmm. Um but well, it's, I love, it's one of I my love too. favorite She tropes. like collapses on the bed and she's like, I'm losing me, which I thought was like yes. such a striking thing to say where it's it, like, it's is not, it, I'm losing it. I'm yeah, losing me myself. Yeah. I'm losing me. And like, that really struck me because obviously like losing touch with reality is scary enough, but like being cognizant that you are losing touch with reality mm-hmm. or you're, and you're losing yourself is that not like the most scary thing? Because it would be better if you didn't know, you know, like there's almost like some comfort in not knowing, but like understanding that you're going to be detached from yourself and go and like going through that experience, like how horrifying. Yeah. You know, it's like they say, you know, crazy people don't know that they're crazy. So the, the really terrifying thing is realizing that you're slipping away. Absolutely. Um, She passes out at this point. And Trent goes looking for Mrs. Pickman, you know, ostensibly to, you know, find some help or whatever. And although uh, he gets down to the lobby and he sees that painting again. And at this point, they're just monsters. They're They're just monsters just hanging out in the grass, you know, catching some rays, whatever. Uh, and we get that great, come on, you old bitch line. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the thing that really strikes me about styles there. And, and, and again, I, I know I keep coming back to this, but I really love when horror cinema or horror fiction in, in general can speak to something that has happened to you, right. That, 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 that can take a, a, a real fear that we've all, or many of us have struggled with and bring it and make it more exaggerated to the point where you can't ignore it. And like, haven't you ever been having like an emotional reaction to something? And you know, you know, you're past the red line, you know, you're out of control, you know, you're reacting unreasonably to a situation, but you cannot arrest the momentum of that moment. Like when I have a panic attack, like it's, I know, I know that I am being unreasonable. Like I know I'm freaking out the fuck good that does, but like, it's like, has, has telling somebody to calm down ever not been, ever done that? Has anybody ever actually calmed down when you tell them to calm down? No. It's like just dumping gasoline on it. And I think we've talked again and again and again about how this is about control, right? 
and which is incidentally what Jurassic Park is about. Um, right. Sam Neill really nailing these control movies in the nineties. Had a, he had that that market covered, but like she is losing herself and she's losing control and she knows it. But there's nothing you can do. And isn't that the scariest thing? Yeah. That that yeah, we're scared of monsters and of reality falling apart and and of ex-murderers and cops but like really what we're scared yeah. of is that we're powerless to affect our own destiny and that all of this is predetermined and that there's nothing you can do you're just a player in 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 somebody else's story so that whole scene with the guy in the bar is suddenly thrown into a new context of like you're not in all of this is happening without your consent all yeah. of, you are completely powerless except in this you have to follow the story. You have to go where they tell you to go and do what they tell you to do. And that's so scary. And that basic fear makes all of the other stuff work. Yeah. Well, I think you see that even more, too, whenever he does, when Trent and um, Sutter Kane eventually meet in a couple scenes from now, when he's like, yeah, you're just doing what I wrote for you or whatever. And it's like the the concept of that everything that happened to him along this way was out of his control and it was destined to happen and he was always going to end up here is kind of terrifying as well mm -hmm. and, uh, and it breaks him in that moment too mm -hmm. absolutely um which reminds me of a non-horror film that i think everybody should see if you haven't seen it uh go see it's will ferrell it's called um uh, stranger than fiction and it's oh, about God, a so woman good. and she's writing this book but but will ferrell is the character and he's he's real he's alive and it's such a great book, or such a great film, and it's so heartbreaking and beautiful and lovely. And I, I don't normally love Will Ferrell, but he's brilliant in this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everyone um, in that film is. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's great. Uh, yes, it, excellent use of motion graphics in that film. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh yeah, to, and it furthers the story too. It's and it, it's wonderful. And and that's sort of a in the mouth of madness for people who maybe don't like scary movies. Very <laughs> yeah, similar you know, it, that, that's fair. That's that's absolutely um, fair. If this one sounds uh, a little too intense for you, start that there one. and work your way in. But again, mm -hmm. um, it is sort of about how do we reckon with our our insignificance on a cosmic scale? Um, again, cosmic horror um, <laughs> themes. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah at this point trent's looking around for pikmin still and we get these horrible cat-like sounds from her it's and he descends into the basement again super super cosmic horror here and basically sees her all tentacled out chopping her husband up with an axe and he decides need to nope out of there. And yep. uh, he, he runs upstairs to get Styles and finds uh, strange tentacle shit happening behind the bathroom door uh, as she appears to be torn to pieces, uh, but then just steps out of the bathroom. Well, she immediately throws his ass through the hotel room door and into the hallway. I'm surprised he's able to get up from that as easily as he is but he does <laughs> beautiful bit of slapstick too like it's such oh, a yeah. scary scene but they they the physical comedy of that scene is also brilliant like 
him coming completely from out of frame and hitting the wall. And, oh, it's great. Mm-hmm. She's so, been watching too much WWE. Uh, yeah, well, John Carpenter seems like a wrestling guy. I mean, I, there's no yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I, I see that. <laughs> like, you, you have Roddy Piper and, That's and true. all that. Like, yep. there's no like, yep, there's no makes sense. There. So, yeah, he, he runs out of the hotel and looks over at the greenhouse, and there's the thing that they talked about, all tentacles and shit. And, um, yeah, it's like, okay, time to boogie on out of here. So he hops in the car and peels out and uh, runs into the downtown, only to find the mutated townsfolk with torches hanging out uh, and circling styles on Main Street. And they're little sing-song, you're a dead girl. And, yeah, I, I never caught that until I watched this with subtitles. Um, and we get the other little random mutant person who runs by with an ax and just stops and pauses and says, fuck you to, um, to oh God. And he's like, nope, I'm just going to do a 180 and step back into the bar here. And, um, he, he finds the mob leader is there, uh, again, I think the character's name is Simon. Um, but he's got a shotgun and his face is extra fucked up. And he's like, uh, yeah, my uh, my other kid, uh, Johnny's sister, she's the one that did this to me, a fucking five-year-old. And um, oh, oh, this is the wonderful line from the guy who says, uh, reality is not what it used to be. Such a good line. It's, it's fun. Oh, it's so great. Love <laughs> it's it. super fun. And so the guy decides to take his top off with a shotgun uh, saying, I have to. He wrote me this way. Okay. Isn't that such a grim spin on the I'm not bad, I'm just drawn this way from Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Like, yeah. I have to, I'm Rose. Oh, man. And I, again, knowing what I know about John Carpenter and his sense of humor and his sensibility, mm-hmm. like, I feel like that is an intentional, not maybe not a reference, but like that that harmony is not entirely by accident. Like, and uh, another movie that's about the boundary between the real and the unreal. Mm-hmm. So. I, I don't know. I, 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 with Carpenter, he reminds me a lot of, of Christopher Nolan in the sense that I don't, very rarely is a detail there by accident. Like, whether you yeah. like it or not, like, this, this stuff is not incidental. Everything is on purpose. Yeah, very careful with what he's like, doing. He's not, he, it, what he shows you is what he wants you to see. Um, and I, I always love that about his, his films. Like, yeah. Yeah. It, it's all very intentional for sure. Um, uh, Trent runs back outside at this point and the townsfolk have um, increased their numbers and they definitely have more torches and axes and Styles is there and she she punches Trent and he re- yeah he reciprocates and knocks her ass out and you know does the, the fireman should. yeah <laughs> at this point it just fuck this shit we're out of here uh, I'm, I got, yep, I'm out we gotta get yeah, out of here he does the, you know, fireman uh, carry with her over to the car and um, they get inside and he's like, where the fuck the keys? And she swallows the damned keys. Uh, him having a massive freak out about this. And uh, I, I can't remember if he decks her again at this point or what, but he grabs a screwdriver out of the glove box and hot wires the car. And um so they drive away uh, and 
she wakes back up and she tries to make out with him, you know, mm-hmm. being like, Hey, this is what he wants. This is, this will be good for the book. Uh, you know, the, yeah. And he, he slams on the brakes and throws her off. And, um, when he gets out of the car, there's the old man boy at a phone booth and he just bikes away looking all creepy. Like he does. Creepy. And this is where he hears bones cracking and so on. And we get our little uh, Poughkeepsie tapes moment of um, Styles with her head not quite on right uh, coming out from around the car. Um, I kind of also felt like that was like a very like an allusion to the thing as well, like the spider Mm -hmm. head sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and and the previously discussed by the two of you, Halloween three with with her in the car at the end, yeah, and that like extremely unsettling scene of like there is something wrong with this person that you used to know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and she tells him with this distorted voice that Kane has a job for him, uh, so he hops back in the car and takes off and finds himself back in town again, so. He- Turns around and takes off, only to see uh, Styles and the old man by, boy on the bike uh, along the road. And, you know, they give him some unsettling smiles. And next thing you know, he's pulling into town again. Um, love this little, um, you know. Love it and hate just, it. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to repeat this shit until, you know. Uh, so he drives off and almost immediately finds himself in town again. He decides this time, yeah, I'm nope. just driving through this crowd. And of course they part and their style standing there. So he swerves to avoid her and crashes. And he wakes up uh, in a confessional in the church. Which Scary is place to be. Yeah, uh, a yeah. deeply alarming place to wake up. Yes, absolutely. And he can't get out. And, um, well, Kane's in the adjacent booth and, uh, essentially says that, um, his writing has achieved something more than religion ever could because people actually believe in his work. Bold that's claim. what gives it power. Yeah. It's very bold. Very bold. <laughs> Love it. Love that for you, bro. Believe in yourself. You got to do that. You got to mm-hmm. suck. Don't, mm-hmm. don't settle. Don't settle. But uh, there's definitely more to this conversation. But uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Trent tells him anyway, your books suck. And the, <laughs> the, the flash of light uh, that comes through the screen and the confessional, you know, just almost enraged is uh, interesting there. Um, and Kane just, you know, at this point, takes a beat and continues on saying that uh, his work is going to make the world ready for the change. You know, when people begin to lose their ability to know the difference between fantasy and reality, the old ones can begin their journey back. Um, And all of a sudden Kane's popping into Trent's confessional just out of nowhere. Again, love the trope and uh, forces him to see uh, shoving his face into the light and we, you know, get uh, the little montage thing again with axes and blood flying everywhere and we just cut to Trent falling on the floor of uh, Kane's writing room as Kane basically wraps things up, right? Um, Yeah. He, like the, he hands... the final piece is in place. Yep, yep, that final, final page there. Uh, and he hands Trent the manuscript as uh 
he goes off to join his new publishers, uh, you know, meaning these old ones. Um, Kane suggests that Trent didn't exist before he wrote him. And Which is a, ho- a horrible thing for someone to say to your face. What, what a horrifying <laughs> thing to have to face, though. Like, mm-hmm. what, if, what if you're mm-hmm. not real? Mm-hmm. Yep. What if you're not real? What does that mean? You feel this, this whole scene? I think I was watching and I was like, oh, Sam Lake definitely really liked this oh, scene. Yeah, yeah. Because this is like so Alan Wake. Um, like every little piece of this scene is like happens in Alan Wake, especially where they're like, did you exist before? You're like narrating everything you're doing. And I was like, oh, I love this. I hadn't put that together until this, this watch yeah. that there I was definitely some inspiration. Therefore, there. you are. Mm-hmm. which is such a terrifying thing to say like and mm-hmm. and and like you're saying in alan wake which is again the same thing about you wrote this thing and something else made it real right but like what's interesting about about alan wake is that the darkness cannot create the darkness can only make real what others have created it doesn't have an imagination of its own so i love the notion that like perhaps sutter kane is just this writer maybe he's just a writer and this thing is making what he's writing real and how scary is that that you don't have control you have no agency yeah Um, yeah themes Um, mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh at this point you know kane you know still needs trent uh in a way so he opens this passageway back to the real world and kane you know they look over their shoulders and all of a sudden there's this elaborate kind of sci-fi looking tunnel that was not there before. And uh, it's basically, you know, for Trent to get back to the real world. And uh, Kane tells him to go now because he can't hold them back any longer. And Kane stands in front of the pulsating wooden door and starts to tear his own being open, like ripping through pages of a book which they Very metal. are because there's yeah. writing on the backside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. love this effect too. Like it, it didn't age super well in terms of like how maybe photorealistic it looks, but it's so effective in the, the idea of it. Yeah. And just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Like works t- literally still. tearing reality apart. Oh, it's mm-hmm. so great. I it's, and yep. like the look on his face like, I mean, you have a great actor in Jurgen Prock now selling mm-hmm. this moment. Yeah. And it's so great. I love it. Yep. And, and- uh, Trent and Styles, they walk up to this abyss and they gaze in while Styles decides to narrate from the manuscript, basically, basically creating what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I love this scene every time it happens. I love it here. I love it in Alan Wake. I love it in the criminally underrated um, New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh, There's yeah. a whole scene oh, yeah. where Wes Craven is writing, Wes Craven writing yes. the thing. And oh, it's, I, it's always, yeah, it always hits. Of a character mm-hmm. realizing that they're in, that they're trapped in this cycle. It's mm-hmm. so great. And they don't overplay it. No, no, no. It's perfect. Yep, it's um, just enough. Uh, and basically, at this point, Trent realizes he's got to piece the fuck out. Uh, yeah. So he's running through this passageway as Eldritch Horrors chase after him. Um, I, 
I know there's like some type of a story behind like the, the critters that are coming after him and how they're basically all one giant animatronic thing that they're pushing after him as they film this. Um, and it looks great. It looks yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he kind of stumbles and falls and, uh, yeah, basically snaps awake in broad daylight at a crossroads. And where, yeah, where the town should, should be, be, but yeah. isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And a paper boy played by the future Anakin Skywalker, uh, directs him to the highway. That's Hayden Christensen there. Is buddy. it really? I wow. didn't know that. Good for him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy to see him get to really nail Darth Vader. Like, I feel like they kind of hobbled him for a long time. So, when, yeah. He got a little bit. Recently, like, you're like, okay, good. You got to actually be Darth Vader for a minute. And you did great, bud. I don't care what anybody says. That was fantastic. 10 out of 10. Loved yeah. it. And uh, the paper boy offers him a paper, but he's like, nah. But as the kid's about to pedal away, he asks him if he's ever heard of Hobbs End. And uh, kid's like, nah, nah. And so Trent just leaves the manuscript in the dirt and walks onto the highway and hitches to a motel. Um, The next day he goes to buy a paper at the desk. And as he's stepping away, the guy's like, oh, hey, man, Mr. Trent, you got package here, man. And he's like, how? No one knows I'm here. Well, someone does. And And the response is so fucking intense. Well, somebody does. Oh, Oh, it's like my my worst nightmare. Like somebody knows you where you are. Oh mm-hmm. man! And he goes to his room before opening it, sees it's the manuscript, storms back down, uh, gives this poor clerk a really hard time, and the manager pops out. Nobody knows nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he just sits there and burns the pages in the sink of the bathroom of the hotel. It's great. That that, that that's going to take a while. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's not a short book. book. It's no. not a short There's a book. lot going on. It is, is very much Stephen King length. Yes. Yes. Um, oh God. And, uh, well, he hops a bus back to New York city and this is where the old lady is talking his ear off about the great depression, how there were bodies stacked in the gutter two and three feet deep. And he just kind of nods off. But, uh, then Kane is sitting next to him again. Yeah. Did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue? Oh, yeah. I'm a god now, you understand. God's not... Yeah, yeah. What is it? God's not supposed to be a hack horror writer. Love that. (laughs) Yeah. Also, like a subtle little criticism, too, because I I, I like that it's like, oh, yeah, well, if you read some of the stuff that the Judeo-Christian God is supposed to do, maybe he is a hack horror writer, you know, turning Mm -hmm. people to salt and the like. And, like, it's... (laughs) I did think it was like, it's a very John Carpenter dig, but I really do love it. So. Yup. Yup. And then, um, yeah, the, the, the famous, you know, look around when you wake up. Did I ever tell you my favorite color was blue? And I, I use that gif way too much, but, uh, it's a good gif. It's a good gif. It's so good. So good. And, uh, maybe top tied for one other gif that you'll get to in a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he, uh, we cut then to Trent going full Karen on some poor clerk who's, you know, telling him, Hey, this town does not exist. It's, I will say that his hostility is somewhat merited because she does open that 
bit of that interaction might be like, are you deaf as well as stupid or something? Yeah, like that? she's like, pretty rough. She's pretty. She rough. might get a little bit of se- like. But he, ha- she did say that he's already ha- asked her like ten times. Yeah, and as someone that might be an exaggeration on her part, but that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. She probably was exaggerating. I'm just saying, like, I tend to take the cust or I tend to take the the clerk side in almost everything, but like. Because I, I, I'm a professional clerk. I get yelled at a lot by people over things that have nothing to do with me. But at the same time, like, if I start off with, like, are you deaf as well as stupid, I maybe deserve that. Mm-hmm. Can I, I need to speak to your supervisor. It's like thing. telling somebody to calm down. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, all right. No. Uh, yeah, but he storms head. out of there. Um, and let's see here. Um, yeah, he he's... Uh, back in the city and he's walking along that same path to the alleyway and he sees the posters for Hobbs End Horror with a little bit of a tear. And he peels it back a little bit and he sees a face that looks pretty damn familiar. Um but keeps walking, doesn't see me. I love this little tease that we don't get to see the full poster until later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh that alley is empty. Um but he meets up with Harglow like the next day or whatever to find out that, uh, yeah, they already got the manuscript from, uh, styles never existed. And the, the book's been a number one seller for months and the movie's out the following month. That's what's that. I feel like that reveal is so impactful because like Xander was saying, like they are kind of playing with time throughout, Mm -hmm. but like the movie's been relatively linear, right? Like we're we're losing like, an hour, a couple minutes here and there. It's like, it's very minimal pieces of time where, oh, like a couple things happen. This is like proposing that he has lost like six months of his life, essentially. That in between the last time we're seeing him in this, like they were like, you brought this months ago in the last spring and now it's July. Like Mm -hmm. three, four, five months have passed and you have no concept of that. And so now it's like, it's like really ramping up what, what is what time am I living in? Like you've completely lost context with the reality well, and the you fact thought that you had. This character has been completely written out of the story yeah, I mean, because this styles even never exist. existed. Yep. And that that's how dreams work, right? Yeah. Time is completely fluid in dreams. Things speed up and slow down. You have dreams that might feel like they lasted days that really lasted only a few minutes or a few hours, what have you. And like, I think the best horror filmmakers use that dream logic and the dream flow to really mess with your head and and to connect with a, with a fear that is not necessarily narrative, that is not necessarily rational. Um, And this does that. And I know I said earlier, but like, if you haven't seen insidious, you really need to go watch insidious because it's the perfect distillation of a nightmare made film. And Mm -hmm. here again, um, and I love, uh, uh, I keep forgetting Charlton Heston's name. Like I can't quick draw it. Like I have to stop and remember his name. Um, that, that Charlton Heston is like, what are you talking about? It's already out. It's no big deal. Everything's fine. And he's mm-hmm. like such, so blase, like does not give a fuck at all. Yeah. He's like, you gave it to us months ago. Why would we think something was wrong? The movie's coming out. Everything's fine. Get out of my office. Yeah. Like, Trent asks him if he ever reads Sutter Kane. He's like, nah, I don't have the stomach for it. Uh, not, not for me. I don't like it. Yeah. And isn't there an interesting, subtle, subtle dig at corporate responsibility? Like, you don't give a shit yeah. about what you have. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what he <laughs> says. He says in the meeting, he says, like, 
well, even if you think I'm crazy, if there was even a slight chance of this happening, shouldn't we pull all the stuff? And he's like, well, it's too late now. And, mm-hmm. but he also like, doesn't care. He doesn't like, But the, the, the danger inherent in what he was doing may never factored into his calculus yeah. because this sold well. And that's all that matters. He doesn't care about it from an artistic perspective. Like he doesn't, it doesn't matter to him what no, he's making. He wants his property. He wants yeah. to yeah. make money off of his property. That's it. Um, well, and just like it was never about Sutter Kane, it was just about his manuscript. Like they, they could give less than two oh, yeah. bucks about. Well, they make the, the comment author. about that earlier yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if he's dead, okay, we at least want our property. Yeah. yeah. And and again, yeah. I know that I'm making a lot out of this connection, but isn't that also what Jurassic Park is about? It's about people who don't have any moral responsibility. Don't take any moral responsibility. For this thing that they allegedly control, this thing that they created as a company, they don't want to take any responsibility for how dangerous it is. They just want to profit off of it. Yep. They want to slap it on a fucking lunchbox. Lunchbox. And so they literally don't care. He doesn't care about it as a literary item. He doesn't care about it as a cultural touchstone. He only cares about it insofar as it can turn a profit for him. Despite the damage it's clearly doing to the world, Mm -hmm. um, and this is why I get so angry sometimes when I talk to people about horror and sci-fi and they're like, well, they're making everything woke now. I'm like, no, that's the, the message was always there. Like, I, I don't know. I can't help you. Like, if you don't see it, like that's not subtle. That's, that, that's art. That's yeah. <laughs> art typically has something to yeah. say. Yep. Like, and, uh. and it's so, it's such an interesting dig at like the complete lack of care taken with what you're putting out into the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel like that's the part that like it ends up breaking him, right? Like he's just like everything I know, time doesn't exist, people I don't exist, and he's like I'm just going to get an axe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, leading up to that, we get uh this awesome line in some type of a news broadcast. It's either TV or radio, but an outbreak of violent crime among the city's clergy. Which is crazy. So, so priests yeah. are just going ax happy. Is that what's happening? What's going on there? So. Holy crap. I want to see that movie. Um, yeah. but yeah, this is where Trent stops this dude with bleeding eyes outside of a bookstore, you know, to ax murder him to death in broad daylight. It's, uh, yeah. Hey, do you like the book? It's, I love it. Oh, well, this should come as no surprise. Then. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that like, again, the speaking to this fear that we have of what are the kids like? What are what are what are young people doing? Like, the religious oh, and sort yeah. of social order being afraid of comic books, of heavy metal, of video games like this going to turn us into this this orgy of violence. And then um, when it happens, it's actually the it's yeah. not the art itself but the people who took no responsibility or care for it yep yep but but let's find like the, the shit to blame instead yeah let's yeah. just blame the movie let's just blame the book i also like this the same full circle like like we've talked about things that were brought up come back like we constantly are coming back to this alleyway we're coming back to this poster we're coming back to the idea of this madman with an axe like these are things that keep getting repeated but they're like they keep getting like slightly off kilter mm-hmm. as it goes on <laughs> where it's like, it Stephen keeps King. getting like deranged. Yeah. We're like this, the same again, but weirder, the same again, but stranger, the same again, but now we're totally mad. 
Um, yeah, in all honesty, this movie has a great economy of locations in that there mm-hmm. are very few. We just come back to them over and over, over and, and over, over but again. But with a slightly different perspective. Yep. And uh, also, like, I'm not going to this bookstore. Like, this is the second axe-related <laughs> yeah. crime that has taken place at this bookstore in a very short period of time. Like, even if six months have passed, like, still... That's two axe murders in a year in this bookstore. Like, that's way... It's a bad track record. Yeah, yeah. That is far outside my number of maximum allowable axe murders per <laughs> bookstore. <laughs> they just wanted to axe you a question. Like, uh, yeah. No. About the new Sutter Kane book. No. I, I resisted the temptation to use that in my notes, even though it was in my brain the entire time. But I appreciate so, you. I appreciate what? you so much. <laughs> yeah. When I was working at the bookstore, I did have a shelf talker card for a Sutter Kane book that wasn't there. And then it, I, and there was a little thing that said out of stock, you know, that's like, cute. just in that's case anybody awesome. came by, they would see it. And, you know, if you know what it is, you'd be like, eh, that's funny. Cause it's not a real book, but uh, yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> my boss uh, one time was like, well, we'll get that back in stock as soon as possible. I was like, yeah, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> Do you want to yeah. bring about that to the world? Well, yeah, if you can get it, I'll read it. Um. I, I've snuck just the barest amount of horror stuff into things at work before, and nobody notices because nobody they're knows. all normies. They're all normies. Yep. They don't that's, know. It's all right. That's one all day. right. Yeah, one day. <laughs> so back to the padded cell, yes. and Dr. Wren is uh, just finishing up his interview with Trent. Uh, Ren is clearly shaken by Trent's story and, uh, you know, Saperstein, uh, outside the cell asks him if he had anything to say. And I love this line. He thinks he's fiction. How chilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, it, this is where we get the line from Saperstein. Oh. You know, do you, do you read, read Sutter Kane? <laughs> oh, like and he's like, you can see that he thought that was gonna sound cool, and then it didn't. And uh, ooh, who hasn't been there? Who has not yeah. whiffed a prepared line and been like, nope, so we're gonna miss. The the only way that it sounds good in any context is just the delivery from John Glover. But yeah, uh, yeah that works. You really gotta nail it. Yep. And then we cut back to Trent in his cell and he starts hearing horrible screaming and worse from outside. And then everything stops for a brief. And then something starts violently shaking his door and um, yeah, uh, he, he blacks out and he wakes up and it's daylight again. This, this happens to him quite a bit in this film. Uh, yeah. And the institution is trashed. Uh, there's blood and damage everywhere, but he's very much alone until he walks out into the hallway and then a shadow passes behind him with a fun little musical stinger. Right. And yes, you got to have the musical stinger in a John Carpenter film. Got oh, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he just, you know, walks, you know, through reception and outside the building. And this is where we start hearing a radio broadcast, uh, talking about, you know, small pockets of people, that are still normal and how you're like, you, if you're still out there, let us like, so, shelter you know. in place. Um, and somewhere in 1994, a young Danny Boyle is sitting there writing the beginning of 28 days later being like, this is gold. Like dude wakes up mm-hmm. in a hospital alone. Everything is trash. There's like a small pocket of people you have to try to get to. I, and I love, I think 
when you see these films or read books or something that is like so obviously inspired so many people that you like. And I'm not saying that's the only thing. Obviously, there's lots of other things going on with all of these works. But like, I can see that you so, you also liked in the mm-hmm. mouth of madness. Like, right on, man. And it's always cool to see that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you love. so he makes it back to the city, and uh, this is where he finds a um, a theater uh, featuring in the mouth of madness, starring John Trent on the marquee. And I love that shot love so it. much. It's so good. Yeah. Is there a better ending in any movie than than him <laughs> watching the movie you're watching? Yeah, that's and, the other. That's, that's the yeah, other man. gift that's is equal. You, ha- you both of those are the best gifts. Yeah, it's yeah. just of him laughing hysterically, holding the popcorn, watching himself. Yeah, yeah, because he he grabs the popcorn and you hear bits of the film, and it's clear as this is cut together, or at least I think that's the intention that he's uh, sitting there in the theater watching this film on a loop at a certain point and he just starts losing his fucking mind. And, uh, we basically end with just a, you know, goopy monster noise stinger and a resurgence of the theme and get credits. The music comes back just such a good part as ever. It's Mm -hmm. great. It's brilliant. It's so good. That's such a good movie. It's fucking in the mouth of madness, man. It's (sighs) love it. Yeah, and there's, yes, arguably better John Carpenter movies. And, you know, on a different day, I might think of another one as better. But, boy, Dollars Donuts, I, I love this movie. You have a hard time beating it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's so underrated. It it's, really there are so, so many underrated. people that don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. But it also, I think, is one of those like gems that you get to bring to people. And it is sort of great when you meet somebody who hasn't seen it, you're like, Oh my God, that's, that's I your mission this to you. Like to all the listeners out there, your mission is go to share, share somebody this share your mouth of madness with a friend that hasn't seen it and yep. spread the craziness. And it should mm-hmm. be a lesson to everybody that look, cosmic horror is not impossible to film. Metafiction is not impossible to do well. Horror comedy is not as difficult as some people make it seem. Like, you can do all of these things. What you need is a really great story, and you need to execute. And I think I get really agitated a lot with, like, movies that are so busy trying to be high-minded, artistic, you know, like, oh, yes, we have very much to say about these important issues, that they don't tell a compelling story. And here's a, this is, it, it has a lot of subtext. But it's also just a great movie. It's just a great monster yeah. story. Oh, this fucking rips, man. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It's everybody spread the good news of uh, In the Mouth of Madness, please. <laughs> please do. It's such a great movie. Can't uh, God. Um, I, I'm trying to think if I have any other like major thoughts about this film, but we've thrown a lot out there. Yeah. Um, y'all got anything else to say about this one? I I will say if you like the film and you like the fact that at the end of the film, you find out that this this has all been sort of meta textual, like this, Mm -hmm. this guy has been a character in a story the whole time. There's a truly brilliant book called Night Film by Marisha Pessel that I (laughs) steal from on a more or less. It's a great. Um, and 
it, it touches on a lot of similar themes of like forbidden art and mm -hmm. the 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 dangers of creation and and meta text and meta fiction mm -hmm. and I, I i that and house of leaves are going to scratch this itch for you if you're looking for more like this and nice. all, and you you should check them out and the void. It's nice. The void's really oh, good. Yeah. Uh, oh god, yeah. Uh, which if you like Jack Harper. I did also say Samuel happened to be in two pretty good cosmic horror movies, the other being Event Horizon, because also does that very well. Uh, a he, movie so good I cannot believe Paul Anderson was allowed near it. Like I I can't believe he did it. It's so good yeah. I can't believe you directed it. If I ever met Paul Anderson, that's what I would say. I'd be like, man. Event Horizon is so good, I can't believe you did it. Don't this is going to come off as the most backhanded compliment I could possibly give you, but... Well, but. here's the thing. I don't care. If I offend him with that, mm -hmm. like, he offended me by making me pay dollar bills cash money to see the last Resident Evil movie, so... It's not his fault you went to it. It's your fault. Yeah, I exactly. can't yell so. at you, so I can <laughs> yell at him. Blame me. I do. And you will be dealt with... <laughs> Your punishment must be more severe. <laughs> no, I think we really oh, we cool. really covered it. This is a good yeah. movie it, with amazing good. themes. It has so much going on for it. It's well shot, well acted, amazing. Oh, yeah. so, like I I really don't have a negative thing to say about it. Yeah. I feel like it's just a, overall really fun, entertaining, great film. Oh god, yeah. It, it's one of those films too that can show you that it is possible to do cosmic horror without being absolutely racist piece of shits exactly. with the exception super of easy. unfortunately having a cast that is super, white. super white, <laughs> uh, except for maybe one character. It's yeah, Robbie, I think is the only person of color in this entire movie, but also this was 94. I understand. Yeah. Um, this is certainly got, one yeah. that I hope, when they do remake it, because they're going <laughs> to remake it. I, I really do hope that somebody takes this and runs with it. Yeah. Um, because there is some really cool stuff still to be done here. And if I was given a John Carpenter, if somebody's like, you can remake any John Carpenter movie you want, this is the one I would pick because I, I think there's still so much in it to do. Well, and you can like, do a lot of different things with it without not just re re the same reaction. Exactly. Yeah. Well, here's hoping for that. Ari Aster's, in the mouth of madness. Yeah, I uh, would see that. I don't always love Ari Aster, but I would go see that. Um, I want Eggers uh, ooh, of the wind. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's somebody who's gonna just be. You want to see weird? I could do weird. Like, see, I'll, I'll take Mike Flanagan's in the mouth of madness. Why don't we have <laughs> our favorite horror directors all make in the mouth of madness and see what see how they turn out? <laughs> see, it, it, Mike Flanagan's in the mouth of madness is gonna be. You know, basically a 10 part miniseries yeah. with, uh, you know, 10 minute long monologues about the nature of reality. And I am here for it. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> sitting on the couch eating the popcorn. Yep. My laughing to myself. Just do me a favor and make one thing where it's not like also everybody has cancer. Or like, <laughs> could you, like, please, He's Mike, you like, out. Mike, you're bumming, you're bringing me down, man. <laughs> you're bringing me down. Like, could you, like, I get it. I get it. You're upset. I'm upset too. Like, but like, maybe chill out on the kids with cancer thing. Like, look, it's Mike Flanagan's world, and we're just living in it. Yeah, honestly, but, I don't remember how much that book actually played into the everybody's dying vibe. Um, I really don't remember because 
I was probably the age of most of those characters in the time period when I read that. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was the target audience. Absolutely. Hey, for Midnight Club. Um, yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but it's what I'm doing next. I'm going to do. Cool. I'm watching that next in my list. You'll like it. I know you will. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> and I, being uh, the ungrateful child I am, am like, I don't want this. Give me my House of Usher. Go back to the kitchen, Mike Flanagan, and bring me the House of Usher. Don't worry. You're getting that next soon. year. It's coming soon. It's coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you again for having me. I was, I really yeah. uh, appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Great yeah, time. Absolutely. Always love being on the podcast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there will at some point be more podcasts to be had. So. Oh, good time. Uh, if you'd like, everyone, where can people find you? Um, you can find me everywhere on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, all the good things at Mad Exposure. I made it very easy for you to find me wherever you would like to converse about horror stuff. Uh, and at the moment, I don't exist, so you can't find me anywhere. But one day. He's too cool for social media. It was bad for my head. It's just not good for me. Nope. I get into a place where I'm I'm in a loop. And I realized I was I had stopped creating to create and I was creating to feed an audience and an algorithm. And I just wasn't for me. So I'll I'll be back with some music for you next year and we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Sounds like a solid plan. Well, this has been Murders with Mertens, a horror film podcast. Thank you for letting us tickle your ear holes. Please like, share and subscribe if you are so inclined. I'll be back soon enough with another episode. But until next time, stay spoopy, everyone.